Are the Cubs' booming bats the key to their World Series aspirations? We'll talk about that and more with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 24th. It's show number 30 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Michael Salfino of Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal about the key to the Cubs' World Series aspirations, the unexpectedly great seasons of Jerickson Profar and Michael Saunders. We'll power rank some relievers. We'll talk about his studs and duds. And there'll be a wee tiny bit of fantasy football. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at the Mets dodging injury trouble, high-skill relievers, some hitter and pitcher splits, and more. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson, looking at Troy Tulowitzki's activation, more trouble in the Texas rotation, some surging pitchers, and other American League news. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Houston first base prospect A.J. Reed. In our playing time comment, Ryan Bloomfield looks at an upcoming spike in Evan Gaddis's value and why you shouldn't give up on Brandon Drury in Arizona. In our frequent flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at free agent third baseman Yulieski Gurriel and Pittsburgh's starting pitching prospect Tyler Glasnow. In our weekend pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at four pitcher matchups, including a Saturday National League game with Mets right-hander Jacob deGrom facing the Braves' righty Julio Terran in Atlanta, a Sunday American League tilt pitting Indians right-hander Josh Tomlin in Detroit against righty Justin Verlander, plus two other matchups. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about trying to build a new pitching metric. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Zach Greinke is 5 for 5 in his career, stealing bases. We gotta talk some baseball. On Thursday night, Arizona ace starter Zach Greinke stole second base with a nifty headfirst slide making him 5 for 5 for his career and the active leader among pitchers for stolen bases. So here's a two-part trivia question for you to mull over. First, only two other active pitchers have more than one career stolen base. Can you guess who they are? And think big. And second, who's the stolen base leader among pitchers in the rotisserie era that's since 1980? And here's a hint for you. Look in Cooperstown. We'll have the answers to those questions at the end of our show, but let's get this party started. In the first inning of our Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League, and leading off, it's our National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. I understand you have a house full of grandchildren to, to deal with as well. We do. We have three, three grandchildren that we're watching during the week, and it's been fun having them here, but life's a little crazy. 
does make everything a little crazy, but in a fun way. So I hope you get to enjoy that all weekend and uh, as long as they're there. Uh, Nick, well, let's start with the New York Mets, who seem to have uh, dodged a couple of bullets here on the injury front. First of all, Noah Syndergaard had some elbow problems after Wednesday's game, came out after six innings complaining of some elbow pain. They sent him for an MRI, and the news was good. Yes, the MRI, the news was good. There was nothing that they found in the MRI that showed any structural damage, and so he's on on anti-inflammatory medication uh, and uh, cleared to do his normal work routine. And if that goes well, then could even actually make his next start. So uh, that's good news for the Mets. Uh, a little bit scary always when someone has elbow problems. It is a little bit scary, and this is not the first time for, for Noah Syndergaard this season. He was... Uh, Visiting the doctor earlier on, he felt some discomfort after he had a really bad outing against the Giants back in May. Got the clean bill of health then as well, didn't miss any uh, starts. He also had some uh, problems in 2015, you'll remember. He uh, didn't get to start right away in 2015 because of forearm tightness, they call it, and that's often a precursor to elbow problems as well. He's had a lot of MRIs on his elbow, Nick. If I were a Noah Syndergaard owner, this all would give me some uh, pause for concern. Yeah, I would indeed. I mean, you know, it's you always worry about the elbows with pitchers, and, and uh, so it, it would be certainly be a cause for concern. Um, on the other hand, the flip side of that is, as somebody who has who has elbow issues himself, uh, mine flares up every once in a while. I don't think there's anything structurally wrong. It's what they call tennis elbow, and that inflammation starts, and then it's hard to get it to go away. So you've got to get on the medication and, and get it to stop. And so maybe that's what's going on. Maybe it's something that a year from now or six months from now or three months from now, we're going to find out uh, needs some more serious work. So I'd be a little nervous if I were a Syndergaard owner. On the other hand, he's so good, I sure wouldn't dump him. I wasn't thinking of dumping him. I'm wondering about selling high. <laughs> yeah, right. You might want to sell high. And you should be, be able to sell very high, I would think, at this point. It's like having uh, having your your car start making weird noises in the transmission every so often. Uh, no better time to trade it in. That's right. Absolutely. And I've had uh, elbow problems myself, tennis elbow related, and I did end up having uh, the cortisone shots and what have you, but eventually surgery was the answer. So uh, like you, I have experience, but it's not the good kind of experience. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, let's hope. We'll hope Syndergaard is the good kind, but uh, I, as, as you said, it's something to worry about. Also, the Mets uh, found out that Ioannis Cespedes, who had some problems with his left wrist, is uh, going to dodge the disabled list as well. He should be okay after a couple of days. He's getting a cortisone injection for a mild sprain, they're calling it. Yes, and that sounds as though that that, that he will stay off the DL, might miss a couple of games. Uh, that's, of course, very good news for the Mets. They've got to have him in the lineup to uh, get any kind of offensive production, which they've been... Uh, been lacking a bit lately. Cespedes has been the core of the Mets offense so far with 18 home runs and 44 RBIs. We're projecting uh, 20 more home runs and 57 more RBIs for a very strong near $30 season. But of course, wrist injuries are a problem for power hitters. They are indeed. Uh, they, they are a real problem for power hitters and can tap into that power very easily. So uh, you know, if, if something that lingers, it could cut into his numbers. Our fine columnist Stephen Nickrand at BaseballHQ.com uh, has the batting buyer's guide and the pitcher's buying guide. We'll start with the batters. This week's columns, Stephen is looking at uh, splits, the various situations the players find themselves in and how they perform. And in his hitter splits column, uh, Stephen was looking at how batters perform with the bases empty versus the bases uh, having some base runners. And he says that Marcel Ozuna has some untapped RBI upside. Yeah, you know, you look at Marcel Ozuna and you say, how can this guy have any, any upside? given what he's been doing this season. He's hitting 322 with 16 home runs and 44 RBIs. And, and you've got to think, you know, this, uh, 
Uh, how can you some? <clears throat> how do you get upside from that? But Stephen points out that that at this point Ozuna has not been hitting with runners on base. Uh, a nine percent home run per fly with runners on base compared to twenty percent home run per fly with the bases empty, uh, and that's just an indication that there's there's uh, a lot more there. Three three fourteen isolated power with the bases empty. One oh nine with runners on base. Uh, the largest dip Stephen says of any power hitter, any hitter in the game. Um, so certainly there is some upside there. A little scary when you look at Marcelo Zuna's numbers at the moment. We're projecting him to finish the year with 31 homers and 86 RBIs. And if he could tap into some of that power, as Steven suggests, uh, he could be much more than the $20 player we're looking at and could be closer to 25 or 30. Of course, the question is, I'm always curious about this when we see these kind of unusual splits. It's supposed to be easier to hit a guy when he's pitching from the stretch, but Ozuna seems to find it harder. And I wonder if uh, maybe the windup allows him to see the ball better as it's coming out of the pitcher's hand and maybe I don't know what it is, but if he he's got to fix it, right, to to get get every dollar's worth out of him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we see that kind of a split. You know, that there's something going on. The guy's got some uh, when he's at the plate with with runners on base. There's some potential there that uh, that's not happening, and so you've got whatever it is that's causing it to to take that dip. Uh, it's something that needs to get figured out. And if it does, look out. For that reason, Marcelo Zuna is a guy that you might want to buy high on. Uh, maybe trade Noah Syndergaard for him. Uh, there you go. <laughs> Steven also wrote about pitchers, as I said, and the, with the uh, runners on, bases empty split, Drew Pomeranz of San Diego has real control problems, but not in the way you'd expect. Yeah, you know, Drew, Drew Pomeranz, it's interesting. He's been kind of up and down all year uh, and struggled with his control uh, most of the season, and, and that's caused a lot of ineffectiveness. But... Uh, all of the control problems are coming when he's pitching from a full windup. Uh, 5.8 control uh, out of the full windup. Control skills rebound with guys on base. 2.9 control walk, walk rate with guys on base. 10.2 dom. Uh, so this guy needs some needs help from a pitching coach and some kind of mechanical adjustment so that when he's pitching from a windup, he can get the ball over the plate. I wonder why they just don't tell him to stop using the, the full windup and just pitch from the stretch all the time. Well, that's entirely possible, and maybe they haven't fully, completely realized the, the incredible difference there is in what's going on in those splits, although you'd think the way that major league teams look at numbers nowadays, they would see that. But uh, certainly there's a lot of upside in Drew Pomerantz if he can fix those those walks with guy, when, uh, when the bases are empty. Boy, you said a mouthful. He's a, he's a really dominant pitcher when he's pitching from the stretch and, and is a mediocre pitcher, frankly, when he's pitching from the full windup. And as you said, the teams are not... Uh, relying on people like us to figure this out at this point. Uh, they have entire staffs full of, uh, you know, economists and uh, numbers crunchers and quants of all descriptions looking at this stuff. It's hard to believe they don't know that this is going on. I wonder what the delay is. Right. Yeah. You just don't, you, you, you know, it's one of those, those hard things to figure out. But, that, but fixing that one thing could, in fact, fix a lot of things with Drew Pomerantz and he could really take off. Another interesting name in Stevens' piece on pitcher splits was Juan Nicasio of Pittsburgh. He was on the restricted list recently dealing with some kind of family issue, and he's coming back, but they've said he's not going to go into the rotation. They're going to leave him in the bullpen and uh, let him sort out some problems. He hasn't pitched well this year. As, as a starter, 50% of his starts have been PQS disasters, which means he's pitched very poorly. But interestingly, Steven says this might be just the perfect situation for Juan Nicasio. The bullpen seems to suit him. It does indeed. You, know, you look at the splits with Juan Nicasio, and what happens is that but when guys are on base, he begins to struggle. 6.7 dom, 5.1 control. 
So a walking almost as many guys as he strikes out and a minus three BPV with runners on base. On the other hand, base is empty, 10.8 dom, 3.0 control, 43% ground ball rate, 134 BPV, uh, really dominant until somebody gets on base against him. And so that might be exactly the kind of guy to pitch, uh, to be a one inning guy out of the bullpen and uh, could work extremely well in that situation for the Pirates. And again, if they realize this is what they have on their hands, they, as you said, they put him in at the start of an inning so he gets to start fresh and uh, maybe just let him go until he allows a base runner and then pull him. Yeah, that sounds like a, would sound like a strategy to me. And finally, Doug Dennis of BaseballHQ.com, our bullpens columnist, has a column out this week called The Tip Top of Elite Skill Sets. He's looking at all the top relievers by base performance value and some other filters. They've got to have a 120 base performance value for the season, 100 base performance value for the past 30 days, both very tough thresholds to cross. Expected ERA under three, a leverage index, an indication of how how difficult the situations are when they're coming in, has to be at least 0.8, which is tough again for the year and the past 30 days. Need a walk rate under four and a home run per nine rate under 1.1. And there's a bunch of interesting names, mostly in the American League. But in the National League, St. Louis reliever Shung Huan Oh, Doug says, has been a revelation, better than closer Trevor Rosenthal. Yeah, he really has. He's been a bit under the radar, and I think perhaps even the even the Cardinals have not realized until recently uh, how good this guy has been. If you look at the overall numbers, 36 games, pitched 37 innings, so being used as a one-inning kind of guy at this point, 1.70 ERA. But in that in that 36-37 inning stretch, 50 strikeouts and only eight walks. That's a 12.2 DOM rate, a 1.9 control rate, a 191 BPV. This guy has been absolutely amazing. Uh, and certainly, uh, it's... The leverage index is getting better for him uh, recently. It looks like St. Louis has suddenly begun to realize what they have and begun to put some trust in using him in uh, in higher leverage situations and certainly could be the guy that would uh, pick up the slack if anything happened to Rosenthal. And uh, you and I have talked about this before, uh, Nick, but starting pitcher or reliever, the one thing I really like to see is a, is a pitcher who combines a high strikeout rate with a high ground ball rate and boy, that's the profile of Shung Huan Oh in a nutshell. It is indeed. 47% ground ball rate, 12.2 dom. Wow. That's really something to, something to take, a t- to pay attention to. Uh, if he's available in your league, and he might be because he's been kind of under the radar, he's a guy to grab immediately. Yeah. What do you think of his chances of getting the closer role? Uh, Trevor Rosenthal has not been tremendous, but he's been getting a lot of saves and, and a lot of that role maintaining it is maintaining the, the manager's trust. And Rosenthal really hasn't given his manager too much to worry about in that regard, despite a skill set that pales in comparison to O. Yeah. You know, I would think Rosenthal is, uh, if I were a manager, I would tend to put more trust in Rosenthal just because he's the guy that's been there and he's done it and he's, He's shown that he can work in that closer situation, which of course uh, can do do something to a guy's psyche when they know they have to get the get those outs in that particular situation. So, uh, you know, I, I would say that that Rosenthal would have to show some collapse before you would go to O. But uh, but that that possibility is there, and even even if if Shung Wan O doesn't get any saves, he's going to really help your team with that kind of strikeout rate and the low whip that he generates. 
You know, speaking of low whip, they mentioned in the BaseballHQ.com write-up about him when he was pitching in Japan and Korea, and I know that's not major league level. They kind of consider it like a 4A type of thing, somewhere between AAA and the majors, but 646 innings pitched in that environment, yeah, a 181 just, you know, that, ERA, just, and just a whip of 085. And if you look at the current ERA and the current whip, they're not far off. 1.70 ERA, 0.81 whip, so he's... he's Coming close to duplicating those numbers in the majors. That's reassuring to me because it's an indication this is not something that's unusual or, or foreign to this guy. You should forgive the expression. He's he's had this level of performance before, and it's only mildly surprising that he's been able to sustain it, even moving up a level to Major League Baseball. He's also got some great nicknames, Nick. Uh, they call him the Final Boss and the Stone Buddha. you got to like to have that on your team. Yeah, absolutely. You know, wouldn't you like to have the Stone Buddha on your team? I would. I can't speak for everybody, but it sounds like fun. It does indeed. One other reliever who made it through Doug's uh, difficult filters was Cubs closer Hector Rondon, and I believe also uh, Pedro Strope of the Cubs, and yet they're talking to the Yankees apparently about adding more relief pitching. Uh, Hector Rondon seems to be getting the job done in a way that a lot of people find surprising. He wasn't at the top of most people's lists coming into the season. No, he was not. And, you know, if you look at saves, he only has 12 saves. And that's because the Cubs have been blowing people out by such large margins that there aren't save situations. And that may continue, given the Cubs' offense. But but other than that, getting away from the fact that he's not getting many save chances, he's been pitching extremely well. Here's a guy with a 12.2 dom rate, 1.1 control, walking one guy per nine innings, striking out 12. Come on. That's just insane. A velocity of 95 miles an hour, almost 96 46% ground ball rate. He has been absolutely amazing. And so Hector Rondon, I think we can give a high sign at this point, is at this point probably the best reliever in the National League. And who would have thought that coming into the season, as I said? Now, BaseballHQ.com is projecting Rondon for 23 saves from here to the end for a 35 total, which would be, which would be very respectable. But as you said, the Cubs score such lopsided victories that it, sometimes it might seem a little hard to believe that he's going to get that many chances. Yeah, it may be, you know, it's one of those things that that's, uh, I, I think uh, if he were on a normal team in a normal situation, those 23 save projection would be fine. But the Cubs may be just uh, scoring so many runs that he will not have as many chances as we would we would project that he would have from now to the end of the season. And, of course, uh, I mentioned earlier about the uh, co combination of ground balls and strikeouts. Same thing here, 46%, 12.2 strikeouts per nine. Boy, oh, boy, uh, this is, Hector Rondon is definitely getting the job done. Uh, uh, you're getting the job done again every week, uh, notwithstanding all the kids running around under your feet. Uh, really appreciate it, Nick, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and, of course, covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's go over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. You got any grandkids running around? No, I sure don't, PD. I was talking earlier with uh, with Nick Nichols, and uh, he's trying to fit in all of his Baseball HQ podcasting and other work with uh, a bunch of grandchildren underfoot, so it's been a, a real challenge for him in a, in a fun and pleasant way. Oh, I think you're safe here. Let's start in Toronto. Troy Tulowitzki was activated after missing uh, about a month or so with a quad strain. Matt Dodge covered this in playing time today at Baseball HQ. What are the ramifications for Tulowitzki's return, and what are his chances of getting back to being an offensive force and a fantasy force, uh, given all of the injury concerns and other concerns that we have? Well, like Matt points out, uh, it, it pretty much much puts the kibosh on a lot of the playing time that uh, Darwin Barney and uh, 
Ryan Goins were, were, were getting uh, while Tulowitzki was out. Goins hasn't been hitting much, as, as Matt pointed out, and he, and he hasn't played since uh, Tulowitzki came back. Barney, surprisingly, is hitting, so he looks like the utility at second and third base for now. But it was interesting. I was looking at uh, Tulo's history, um, particularly his 2015 and the monthly data and the first half, uh, second half data, and trying to figure out when his plate skills, particularly his contact, began to deteriorate. And it, and it actually looks like this began during the first half of the 2015 season when he was still in Coors Field. Um, it almost seems like the Rockies saw a good sell-high opportunity and took advantage of it. Uh, looking at it right now and where his numbers are and looking at his entire history, uh, his power is still there, but uh, I'm, not so, I'm not convinced that that batting average is at, at, ever going to come back near where he was in Coors Field, which part of that obviously is, uh, is just a truism on face, but uh, his plate skills have gone downhill. You know, a couple of weeks ago when Jeff Erickson was on the podcast, uh, we were talking about Tulowitzki, uh, who uh, he drafted in Tout Wars in the same league that I'm in, and he offered me uh, Tulowitzki for um, uh, Marcus Semyon down in Oakland, straight up, just a straight challenge trade. And I said, well, I'll have to look into it. And when I did look into it, you know, something that really jumped out at me is ever since he came to Toronto, you're right about the decline that started in Colorado, but since he's arrived in Toronto... The decline seems to be accelerating. His contact rate fell, I think, to 78% when you're in that period you're talking about. Then it dropped to 74%. And at the same time, his batting average on balls in play has plummeted from sort of the mid 35% area down to below 30%. This year, it's down around 24%. And the question is, can that rebound back to his normal even 30% level, in which case you'd have to think, you know, maybe he's got a chance here, but his line drive rate is off, he's striking out way more often. I'm not 100% convinced either that this is going to be a batting average turnaround situation and therefore a buy low for fantasy owners. No, you're right, and, and Toronto is a good is a good park for, for hitters, particularly home run hitters, but it doesn't have the dimensions that Coors Field had, and, and, and Tula was putting up... Uh, regular uh, uh, 30 plus percent hit rates in Coors Field like like most hitters do so yeah I don't see that coming back that uh, that trade that uh, Jeff offered you is, is interesting it's almost a health bet too and uh, I wouldn't be counting on Tulo's health going forward I, I think you were right in turning that one down I, I definitely bet on Semyon being in the everyday lineup and hitting home runs more than I would Tulowitzki going forward and of course, the the knock on Semyon is the batting average, and as I said, I'm not just not 100 percent sure that Tulowitzki is going to bounce back and become better than Semyon in that department either. Yeah, I, I don't I don't have a lot of confidence in Troy Tulowitzki uh, right now and for the foreseeable future either. Uh, the other big situation I'd like to talk to you about. Uh, Jock is because you cover the American League West for baseballhq.com in the playing time tomorrow area. I'd like to ask your opinion about what's going on in Texas. The last time I checked, they were 20 plus games over 500. They're nine or 10 games in the lead in the American League West, and their starting pitching rotation is absolutely in a shambles. Every time they think they're getting a guy back, they lose two more. And lately, the new ones are Derek Holland and Colby Lewis, both going to the DL. This sounds like it could be real trouble for Texas, notwithstanding their great performance so far. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating because um, both Colby Lewis and Martin Perez, uh, season to date, have pitched so far over their heads. Believe it or not, the Rangers have one of the best starting rotation uh, ERAs in, uh, in baseball, certainly in the American League. 
but uh, now, I mean, like you mentioned, that uh, they've lost Lewis. Uh, he's going to be out, uh, what, I think for two months due to a lat strain. They lost Derek Holland, who wasn't uh, pitching particularly well. He, In fact, he'd been pitching lousy. His ERA was over five, and he has shoulder inflammation, which he's had in the past. Um, and, of course, they lost Hugh Darvish three games after his return from Tommy John surgery. He's having shoulder issues. And um, I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago back in, um, uh, well, just a, a couple of weeks ago in, in my American League playing time tomorrow space. Um, the, the Rangers have a terrific offense. And, and like you said, they're, they're 21 games over 500. Their pitching has been pitching over their head. But now um, they're going to need that big cushion. They've got a 10-game lead in the American League West. I thought back then they were going to be very active in the rotation, uh, the starting pitching trade market, and this just accelerates their progress because they don't have a lot down in the minors that can come up and help them right now. Well, I plan to talk about this a little later on in the show with our guest expert, uh, Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports, but I'm curious what you think because you watch this all the time. It's fairly clear that the uh, Texas Rangers have a lot of prospects, but not a lot of pitching prospects. No, and certainly not a, a lot of major league ready pitching prospects. They have guys in the low minors, and it wouldn't surprise to see me use them, use see them use them in trade, depending on the nature of the pitching pitcher they're pursuing. But uh, right now they're going to be going with names like A.J. Griffin, who was so good at the beginning of the season. But again, he's another guy who has health problems, and and uh, he was uh, uh, put on the DL with more shoulder problems, and he hasn't been pitching that well in the minors. He's going to come back probably and start a few games. Nick Martinez is going to come back, uh, Alex Chichi Gonzalez. None of these guys are guys you want to depend on for too long, and uh, it's also a cautionary tale for the next three, four weeks at least until things change. If you have hitters going up against Texas, particularly given that the front of their bullpen isn't that good either, you got to get them in the lineup because uh, I see a lot of scoring in those particular contests. Good advice also for daily formats. Uh, anytime you see somebody going into Texas, especially because it's a favorable hitter's park, the visiting team in Texas might be a, a decent daily play as well. Now, if Holland or Lewis should happen to return early, that's still no guarantee, right? No, it's not. Uh, there, there's absolutely no guarantee with, with Holland or Lewis. Holland has been pitching poorly all season long. And Lewis has been has been uh, just really out pitching his uh, his peripherals. I wrote a speculator piece that included him. Um, he uh, basically was was just out of this world. I don't know if you remember just a week ago before he went on the DL, he was throwing a no hitter entering I think the eighth or ninth inning. Uh, uh, he lost that. He came away with the win. But um, this is a guy who who had a, a, a whose ERA was under three, but his expected ERA was almost two runs worse than that. He was only striking out four and a half batters per game. That was that spells doom, really, particularly when the summer months are coming in Arlington. And if you look at his history, this is a guy who posted a 4.80 ERA in, during 2014 and 2015, over 375 innings pitch, which suggests that. Um, like uh, Ryan Bloomfield said in a fact fluke column he did recently on Lewis, this is a mirage and it wasn't going to last even if he'd stayed healthy. Well, I'll take a bit of the devil's advocate side of this. Uh, there are a few pitchers around the league, Chris Young in Kansas City, uh, I'm in mind of, and, and Marco Estrada to a little bit lesser extent in Toronto, in that they are relatively low strikeout, but relatively high fly ball pitchers. And Gene McCaffrey, uh, who's been a guest on our show, he strongly believes 
that as long as you have a relatively small number of pitchers who are able and willing to pitch high in the zone, because so few hitters see it anymore, a ball above the waist, that as long as it's in the strike zone, it becomes very difficult for a modern major league hitter to actually get good wood on. And as a result, these guys can actually succeed despite a set of skills that on the surface doesn't look that great. Yeah, well, Chris Young is a good example of that. And of course, he has the the height and the, and the tremendous deception that ball gets down on you fast where he can get away with that. There's nothing in Colby Lewis's history that says he, he'll get away with that for too long at all. In fact, He's, uh, he's always given up a lot of home runs. The warm weather was coming in Texas. Uh, that's not the guy I want to try that theory out on. Yeah, you're right about that. When, it, when you're thinking of it as a theory, it, it uh, certainly requires a certain amount of constitutional fortitude that uh, you have to apply to, uh, especially if you have a decent fantasy team that's in the running, you, you really can't rely on a guy like Lewis. Uh, it's, it's pretty dangerous. Now, speaking of guys you can rely on or whether you want to, how about knuckleballer Stephen Wright in Boston? This is a pitcher who has just come out of uh, left field, you should forgive the expression, and because of the of the freak pitch or the trick pitch that he uses, he could be a little bit tough to evaluate as we look at what he might do in the future, but he's having a great year so far. This has been covered by uh, you, I think, in uh, in your 30-day pitching surgers piece, and uh, possibly also Ryan Bloomfield at BaseballHQ.com in his Facts and Flukes. Yeah, uh, it was interesting. Uh, Ryan and I, to the naked eye, um, um, people may have thought that we differed a little bit in, in our uh, our uh, conclusions with regard to what I said in the speculator and what Ryan said in his fact Luke's uh, column. I don't think so. It's it's really tough to evaluate a guy like Stephen Wright. Uh, um, like like Ryan says, they're a rare rare breed, and our 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 metrics don't exactly uh, aren't exactly uh, targeting guys like him. He has the trick pitch. Um, Ryan said something that was that was very interesting. Um, um, basically, that that both. Uh, Wright and R.A. Dickey, for example, had both outpitched their their skills in their better years, uh, and that R.A. Dickey had better skills. He seems to think that Wright is is headed for a fall, and I don't doubt that. I don't think he's going to pitch as well as he has over the past month. My take on Wright, though, is that uh, he's on a roll, and knuckleballers on a roll, as we've seen, can can stay there forever. Plus, he has eight wins on a very good hitting Boston team. My take is that you ride a guy like Wright down, uh, um, particularly if you're looking for wins. On a solid scoring club, too. He doesn't have to really do that well. He can give up four runs and win 8-4 in a lot of instances. But when I look at his PQS log for this year, he's got a lot of fours and fives up there and not a lot of disasters. I, I only count uh, a single PQS one out of all of his scores and a lot of fours and a, and a five. So far this year, he seems to be defying everything that we expect of him because, as you said, it could be that when you're talking about a knuckleball pitchers, these metrics just don't apply. Yeah, and uh, and Ryan is looking a lot at his control, which is subpar, and and the expected ERA is is definitely not in line with the with the excellence that he's shown so far. But uh, yeah, if the results are there and he's winning games, um, I want that knuckleballer on my team. <laughs> 
I will say that earlier in the year he was striking out guys almost nine per nine innings, so a strikeout per inning, and that has been steadily shrinking down to the point where after his game uh, earlier this week against the White Sox, he took a no decision. His uh, strikeout per nine ratio's dominance is 6.2, and if you go from 8.6 to 6.2, that means during that stretch you were under 6.2 to pull the overall average down. It may be that the knuckleball is getting harder for him to, to rely on, or the scouts are warning their hitters not to swing because certain knuckleballs just aren't finding the zone. His walk rate has increased a, a little bit from around 2.9 to around 3.8. So you're adding walks and subtracting strikeouts. It maybe is a sign of concern, but again, it's a knuckleball. Who the heck knows? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, better minds than I have thought about this, and we haven't come up with any conclusions yet. <laughs> You also covered Matt Shoemaker of the Angels. I heard somebody talking about fantasy baseball the other day who said that Matt Shoemaker is single-handedly winning a lot of leagues for a lot of guys who picked up Matt Shoemaker early in the season as a free agent in their fantasy leagues. Uh, he's down there in Anaheim in your uh, neck of the woods. What is going on with Matt Shoemaker and how sustainable do you think it could be? Yeah, this has always been about his splitter. When he had the great rookie year in 2014, it was because he came up with just a dominating splitter and he was able to control it. Um, when he began, when his performance began to deteriorate, it was all about his splitter demand. He, uh, command. He hung too many of them. He started throwing it less because he wasn't confident in it. Now he's throwing it more again, and he's commanding it again. And uh, those crazy numbers that he had over the last month, obviously, they're they're not going to stay the same. They're going to subside. Uh, and like I said in my piece, it's, it's instructive to remember that he was pitching poorly enough to earn AAA demotions both last August and just again this past May. But um, my take is when I see what he's done in the last month and even even after after that, uh, his last start was good, not great. He's always going to be susceptible to home runs. But I don't know, bad bad major league pitchers just don't have the stretches that that he's had. So I'm I'm holding if I own Matt Shoemaker. I can say I wish I had Matt Shoemaker. I looked at him earlier in the year and I just didn't see anything there. And uh, somebody else snapped him up, and of course they're happy he did, and I'm sad I didn't. Uh, finally, Stephen Nickrand at BaseballHQ.com talked about uh, some of his work with uh, Nick a little earlier in the show, but he covered the uh, hitter's situations as splits with runners on base versus no runners on base and one of the names that popped up on his uh, screen was twin slugger Miguel Sano I think he's uh, coming back from the DL maybe in the next week or so and he's really struggled with runners on base which is doubly problematic in the first place it means he does just doesn't do well in general and in the second because he strikes out so much his RBI potential is limited and it's further limited because he doesn't seem to be able to hit when there's runners on. Yeah, in Stevens' uh, analysis over all of hitters, he discovered that in general, hitters draw more walks and strike out less with runners on base and the base is empty, that batting averages are typically 15, 20 points higher with runners on bases compared to the, the bases empty, um, things like that, mainly probably because pitchers have to come in. But then he looked at, at splits uh, between hitters who should be producing and shouldn't be. And Sano's name popped up. Um, now, he, he thinks, uh, obviously, I think we all think that Sano's another young bat with a high ceiling. Um, this split has hurt him. He's been very productive with runners uh, with the bases empty. Uh, almost all of his struggles have come with guys on base. Uh, he seems to think that with improved composure uh, that Sano could produce a big half. And I tend to agree with him. If you think about where the Twins were early in the year, they really struggled offensively. I'm sure that Sano put some of that pressure on himself. I think 
since Sano's been gone particularly, they've come up with some better top-of-the-order efforts recently. Um, Robbie Grossman has been very good for them. Uh, Eduardo Nunez is having a surprisingly good year. I think, I think like Stephen, Sano's more talented than this. And I also think Minnesota's hitters are going to do a lot better in the second half they did in the first. I think they're due. I think they're not this bad. I agree with Nick Rand. I think that uh, Sano is going to have a big second half if he can stay healthy. Well, I'll play the devil's advocate here again, Jock, uh, on three fronts. First of all, I just don't buy any kind of argument that has to do with a player's makeup or composure or all of these kind of things. So the idea that he freezes in some way because there's a guy on base just strikes me as being a, an argument that is really unsupportable. The second thing is he still strikes out 40% of the time, and that's the real problem. And the third thing for me, Jock, is this. Any analysis that says Miguel Sano can turn it around because Robbie Grossman's at the top of the order now is not a good argument because Robbie Grossman's not good. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, I mean, obviously, if we're gonna if we're gonna analyze uh, Sano, warts and all, um, his he's he's not a contact hitter. He's not going to be a batting average hitter. His uh, his strength is power. Uh, with respect to Grossman, I mean, you may be right about Grossman. We're looking at a small sample. We're looking at a small sample with Sano in terms of what he's doing with runners on base. On the other hand, Grossman's been a lot better this year than he's ever been at the major league level. And part of that is his patience. That's the one constant that he's had, and he is walking a lot. He is getting on base, and he will be hitting in front of uh, Sano. So I'm willing to wait and see. I agree with you that I'm not going to bet the farm on, on Robbie Grossman, but with what he's done this year so far, he's all the sudden become interesting well yeah but you know he's he's always been a guy who could draw a walk and it hasn't really seemed to accomplish anything useful from a fantasy perspective i i just don't see it jock uh, always fun to talk baseball ab about uh, these kinds of things especially with the guy who's on top of it the way you are i appreciate it and we'll talk to you again next week okay pd Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com. He writes regularly for the site as well. When we come back, our guest expert is Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal. Coming right back on Baseball HQ Radio. 1-1, one, one, pitch. He popped him up. He's going to get it. Rochus down from third. Rochus makes the catch. Ball game over. A perfect game. A perfect game for David Cohn. The third time works like a charm. It is the third perfect game in Yankee Stadium history. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's time now for our feature expert interview. And it's our pleasure to be joined once again by Yahoo Sports and Wall Street Journal sports writer Michael Salfino. Michael, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Great to be here, Patrick. Before we start talking about players and ideas and things like that, how are your fantasy teams doing? Well, it's um, my dynasty team is in a total rebuild. So, you know, I have a bunch of guys who are, like, eligible for the 2017 draft. And uh, one guy, you know, the uh, college player of the year who was a freshman, first freshman ever, um, he was a big trade acquisition. His name is Seth Beer. It's going to be fun to have a player named Beer who, uh, you know, might turn out to be a major league star, hopefully. Um, so so that that's, you know, obviously it's, it's tough to really assess how well your team is doing when you're in a situation like that. It's a very deep league. My score sheet team has been kind of disappointing because I um, was counting heavily on Brantley returning to health. It was in a situation where I kind of had to keep him, so I had to 
um, count on that, and that obviously hasn't worked out. I mean, I think he's been like the biggest uh, injury disappointment of the year um, with really no timetable even still for his return. So um, that's that's been bad. And, um, you know, the, the uh, only other league, I, I'm in an AL only and an NL only uh, league, and I'm sort of middle of the pack in both of those leagues, um, you know, and possibly contending, but, but uh, certainly not dominating. I'd like to talk about uh, Seth Beer for a second. Uh, you look at this kid, and he seems to have all the tools to be a tremendous success in Major League Baseball, and yet we know that even the most prized prospects at that level can come up and, and really not work out to be the stars we hope for them to be. When you look at a player at that level, at that age level especially, what are you looking for that you think maybe gives him a, an edge in the unlikely race to uh, Major League stardom? Well, I think you have to be like such a significant outlier, um, you know, uh, when, when you adjust for your age and your level of experience. And Beer certainly qualifies in that regard, given his, his stats are just outrageous. Like any way you look at his numbers, um, I think he was hit by 15 pitches and had something like, you know, 60 walks and 15 strikeouts and uh, about 20 homers. Uh, it's just a ridiculous stat line for any college player, let alone a freshman and in, in the ACC, which is he plays for Clemson, so it's a pretty significant league. I would uh, assess his chances of success as being pretty high, given all the caveats that apply to a prospect generally. So I think for a prospect, his odds are about as good as, as any player in college right now, including the guys who were recently drafted. So it's just a question now of, you know, obviously you have to wait and there are some opportunity costs. But uh, this, this dynasty format that I'm in is so deep. It's a 20-team league with 45-man rosters where you drop down to 28. And there's really no rules. It's like the Wild West as, in terms of who you can pick up. Um, so, you know, I think, I think it's, it's going to be worth the wait. Um, and obviously, as his major league debut becomes closer and his draft day becomes closer, assuming he stays on this trajectory, I think that um, then you have the opportunity of trading him for younger current major league assets as well. Yeah, it's an interesting point of view of looking at how you take your players and your roster positions in a league like yours, a long-term dynasty league that goes so deeply down into the younger players. And that is what a lot of general managers, especially the younger generation of general managers, have figured out is that they're not just players, they're assets to be managed. And uh, going outside of baseball, I think one of the premier proponents of that is Danny Ainge of the Boston Celtics, who just amasses whatever he can get in terms of draft picks, roster guys, and he just views them as things to be as pieces on the chessboard. Exactly. And what you're trying to do is just achieve some surplus value relative to what it costs to pick these players up and, um, and, and then cash in. You know, and it doesn't matter. Uh, it's like the old Warren Buffett saying, nobody ever went broke making money. So as long as you're turning a profit on the assets that you acquire, you're doing well. And it it looks like the stock market are, are playing that the long-term investment game in another way as well, in that what is a undervalued asset now, you have to also factor in what is the asset's value going to be three years down the road, five years down the road. It's like buying options or futures on these players rather than just owning them as, as productive assets in their own right. 
Yeah, exactly. But, you know, the most prized asset, as you know, in any long-term dynasty uh, forever format is obviously a top hitter, especially in an on-base percentage league um, when you have a skill set like Beer's. Uh, like beer does so so the 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 trick really is to try to cash in i think on the pitching assets as quickly as possible and just try to always uh kind of churn those and and to try to get peak value when those pitching assets are are peaking just so you could avoid some of the uh performance volatility and obviously the injury risk that's just inherent at the position yeah, that's an excellent point as well. Uh, speaking of uh, valuing minor leaguers, you tweeted recently about current fantasy darling jerks and profile of the Rangers, and you were talking about, uh, involved in a discussion about the uh, idea that uh, he was uh, um, this super prospect because of his minor league numbers. And then you said, and I quote, most of his excellence in his minor league career has to be age-adjusted to rank great because it's not great in and of itself. What do you mean by that? Well, and then I looked a little bit closer. Like, for me, Twitter is almost like a, uh, a notepad where I'm developing ideas. But, but I would say that's still generally a fair point, although you could say that his age 19 season in AA, um, even without the age adjustment, was very good um, in, in a vacuum. But that would be the, the one season where, where I think you would just uh, – um, where you would still – I would say it's probably like 50% age adjustment and 50% just the raw um, uh, power of his stats, uh, and especially his strikeout-to-walk ratio, which is the first thing that I look at for um, a, a prospect, especially a younger prospect. So Profar has um, hit so much better in the major leagues than he was hitting in the minor leagues, and you can, I think, make an argument that he's doing that this year because he had had such little playing experience leading into this season that maybe now he's just peaking. So it's not just a matter of just randomly doing better at the higher level, which, which is something that we would not anticipate and I think would be, we would be more inclined to reject as bettable for the future. Um, but the, the issue with Profar, his strikeouts are really good but his walks are, are, are really bad as well. So um, I really don't know what to make out of him. Obviously, you can't really buy the batting average where it is right now. And while his isolated slugging is okay, uh, it's a product of having, um, I think, three times as many homers and triples as he does doubles. So, uh, But I, I think it's fair to put the doubles and the triples together. So even... Even his, his isolated power seems to be uh, somewhat bettable going forward. So it's just a question of how much of a hit do you think he's going to take in batting average, although he was always projected to be a potential batting champion. So I don't know how much to discount that. I think he's just a very um, interesting player right now in, in the sense that I think there's going to be a wide variance of the opinions on his uh, foreseeable future. And when you talk about age adjustment, the fact in 2012 when he was at AA, I think, Frisco, he was at age 19, which is young for the level. And so you, the adjustment that you're talking about is saying, I think he hit around 280 in Frisco. And at age 19, you have to say, boy, uh, that's, a, that's very projectable because he's so young to be doing it at this level. 
and 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 the better stat obviously is OPS, and I think it was something like 880 maybe, and I think he had you know his his strikeouts to walks were were maybe like something like off the top of my head 60 ish walks and 70 ish strikeouts, which is outstanding, um, and, and that's what's odd about his his major league years so far in that the strikeouts are what we would have projected them to be looking at that season in the minor leagues at that age, but his walks really haven't. Uh, and maybe that's just because he's barreling up the ball so easily that he's just not getting into deeper counts. Like that could be, that's another tricky thing about the walks. It could just be, you know, the better you hit, the less likely you are to walk because when you swing, you're more likely to make good contact. And I know we don't like to use the idea of confidence as a, as a, a a measuring stick, but I think there's something to be said for it. If you're if you're hitting well, you feel like you're going to keep hitting well. Now you mentioned that uh, Jerickson Profar, he's hitting a 340, 350 somewhere in that range since his call up uh, after the Rugnetto door uh, rumble in the jungle with uh, Jose Bautista. <laughs> Not that it was a rumble, kind of a one punch deal, but uh, his. Batting average on balls in play in that period is 380, and I think that's not only so far above the league norm, it's pretty far above his own norm, and that seems almost certain to regress somewhat. Yeah, the thing is, though, that what's tricky about Profar is what's his norm. Yeah, that's a good point, yeah. That's why he's such a fascinating player right now, and a player where I think there's still an opportunity to make a profit because there's a good chance, like we always say that the player who owns the 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 owner in your league who owns the player that you want that you covet he likes that player even more than you do this may be one of those rare cases where where maybe the profar owner in your league is not believing profar yeah that's right because he probably was acquired as a fab pickup for an injury replacement or something like that you make a good point about the um, psychological mindset of owners in fantasy baseball leagues there's a pretty interesting field of behavioral economics that comes to play when you start looking at how fantasy owners behave and and one of the things is there's a bias towards the thing that you have and a fear of the thing you don't have and that you're being asked to swap for. And there's a lot of risk adversity and, and the, the uh, inclination to hold on to what you have. And that may not be the case here because there's lots of people in the fantasy universe talking about Profar's high BABIP, his, uh, all of these luck indicators that are not going his way, that maybe this is the time to make a bid on Profar th- so that the guy thinks he's selling high when he's really not. Yeah, and I just looked it up on uh, Inside Edge. And he's hitting exactly league average in his well hit rate, and that's a bat bat, so it's kind of like a batting average. So it, it's 138, and that's exactly the league average rate. So you would expect that um, to the to the extent that BABIP and well hit rate correlate, which intuitively they should, you would expect him to have a more average BABIP. So the fact that it's 380, you could kind of use that to ding him. Although um, obviously he's he's slugging 517, so when he does hit the ball well, I, I think he's um, uh, he's hitting it really well. But the thing that you were talking about before that I found interesting with uh, some of the behavioral economics and trading is I think that's the reason why, and, and everybody views it as like, oh, yeah, obviously you're going to try to do that. That's what everybody does. But most fantasy owners aren't dumb enough to do the, the – um, buy low sell high you could i think i think you could do that in just about any format even with experts if you're willing to sell somebody who's doing really well like say a profar if you have him rostered 
for somebody who is is not doing well relative to their the back of their baseball card who you think is going to regress meaning like almost like progress to that level that's a trade that you could get done in any format with just about any owner because that's just the way we are we all think that's right yeah you're you're exactly right and those are the kind of offers that you have to really be willing to make because at this stage of the game, given the information revolution that's taken place over the last 10 years or so, even the dimmer bulbs in the fantasy baseball universe in home leagues and, and, uh, you know, even the daily games or the online games, public leagues and so forth, everybody knows a lot of this stuff. And so you can't really get away with buying low and selling high because, uh, uh, everybody knows who's trying to do that, as you said. Uh, a lot of fantasy owners and Mets fans have been really down on Michael Conforto the last few weeks as he has really struggled. I looked him up uh, May 22nd through June 19th, 137 batting average, 288 slugging. All along, you've been advising everyone to calm down on Michael Conforto. Why are you so optimistic? Well, I think he's a really good hitter, and it really could go back to May 1st. I mean, there's a story I'm working on for the journal that you know, got bumped because of the Knicks trade for Derrick Rose yesterday. So um, I don't, I'm not sure exactly when that's going to run. But but basically, he's hit about as well as the Mets pitchers since May 1st, collectively. So that's obviously like really bad. I mean, you can't you can't afford to have two pitchers. But but um, his well hit rate for the year is 202. Um, and again, the league average is 138. Last year it was 186. So I think that there's a, an element of bad luck in his recent performance. Performance, and while well hit rate, the the, the well hit average that I use from Inside Edge does account for strikeouts, um, as as I think is is uh, is perfectly reasonable and almost necessary. Um, his strikeouts, we should note, have really risen dramatically. During this slump, I think he's about um, a strikeout every 3.4 at bats versus 5.2 prior in his in his entire career, including 2015 uh, through April. So, uh, you know, I, I don't really like the way the Mets are handling him. I think he should be he should have been playing every day from the start. Um, and I think that basically, when you believe in a player. Um, and obviously, Conforto had a great hitting pedigree and had great success hitting uh, uh, to start his career. I think when he inevitably hits a slump, and it's inevitable that all hitters will hit them, that I think you have to be cool and just like keep the guy. It's like, you're our number three hitter. We're just going to stick with you. You can't start moving a guy down in the lineup and then moving him up in the lineup and then back even further down in the lineup. I think that's just reminding the guy every time he looks at the lineup card that, oh, yeah, I'm in a slump. And like you were saying before about the confidence, um, I think it's best in those situations to just not make any changes and just count on the player who you think is a good hitter to hit his way out of a slump. Well, that raises an interesting point then. From the point of view of a fantasy owner or from the point of view of the Mets themselves, the stats that I recited a moment ago were pretty much a solid month. How long do you have to let this guy keep slumping before you really have to do something because it starts to look less like a slump and starting to move towards becoming a new baseline? Yeah, that's the the tricky question. His big problem is hitting inside pitches. His well-hit rate on inside pitches is, is, is poor relative to the league. 
And, and that's judged on swings, not necessarily just the outcome of the at-bat. So those numbers are just always abysmally low. The major league average is like, you know, you have a well-hit average of, of 60 on, you know, .060 on inside swings, according to Inside Edge. And I think Conforto is point zero four four. Last year he was point zero five one. Um, last time I checked, he was like a hundred and thirty seventh out of a hundred and sixty four qualifiers in that uh, area of hitting. So you could say that that's his weakness and that he needs to work on it. But if you send him down to say Las Vegas, which is in incredibly inflated hitting environment with pitchers who aren't that good because how you don't really want your good pitching prospects to be pitching in that league for very long at all. So you're more inclined to bring them up straight from double A. How, how is he going to learn how to hit the inside pitches that the pitchers are now pounding him with at a lower level of competition where the quality of those pitches is so much poorer um, personally, what I would do is I would put him second in the order and I would have him hit ahead of my best hitter so that pitchers feel like they have to throw more strikes. So maybe those inside pitches won't be quite as inside and he won't be chasing as much. Um, but I don't know. I mean, this is an inexact science. You're dealing with human beings. Like, everybody's different. He seems to be handling it well in the way he's talking about his slump. Um, I, again, I don't like the way Terry Collins is managing him during the slump, but um, he could just, you know, have a homer and a double tomorrow and kind of be out of it. But there have been some instances during this period where he had a big homer against the Pirates, and you thought that maybe he was going to come out of it then, and he didn't. And then we found out that his wrist was sore and he needed a cortisone shot. So there are a lot of factors at play. I, I, I wouldn't... He, uh, you can trade him. Um, if he's available on on the waiver wire, I would be inclined to pick him up in, in a 12-team mixed league. Um, and, and I would basically be holding him as a reserve, I think, at this point, until I, seen, uh, I saw signs of him coming out of this funk. Another Michael having a big year, Michael Saunders of the Blue Jays. Uh, of course, a terrible injury history with him, but he's played regularly this season. You said that you were wrong about Michael Saunders. I was wrong about Michael Saunders. I'll freely admit it. I advised a friend of mine to waive him. He had him at six bucks in the league, and now he's mad at me. <laughs> Michael Saunders is hitting three oh four. He's uh, got 15 home runs so far. He's got a 967 OPS. Uh, where did we go wrong on, on Michael Saunders? Or did Michael Saunders just start going right? Yeah, that's the thing. You know, like, all these players are really good, so they're, they're all um, capable of an outbreak, I guess. And this is what's happened with Saunders. And obviously it had so many age histories that it was hard to assess really where he was in his career. His well-hit rate is 207, so that's elite um, and, and bettable going forward. You would look at that number and you would say, oh, yeah, this guy is just a good hitter. Um, and, and, again, that accounts for his strikeouts. That includes his strikeouts. Slugging 586, I mean, it's something that's very bettable going forward. I mean, there's no way that I would be, like, looking to sell Saunders high, for example. So, um, and he's obviously in a great lineup in a great park. You know, the other thing that was a factor is we didn't know what was going to happen with Chris Calabella, and that 
that obviously has had a ripple effect for his playing time prospects. All of that is true, but at the same time, we're looking at a at a at a player who's sort of career level uh, BABIP has been around, what, 290? This year it's at 370 or 380, and his batting average has followed suit. I mean, even though he's hitting the ball hard, which of course increases your BABIP and uh, therefore your batting average, even accounting for all that, man, that's a, that's a mighty high BABIP, and it, it just looks like um, there's regression coming here. Well, here's the way I look at it. The, uh, I, I try to use well hit with BABIP, and obviously well hit, include strikeouts and homers, which Babbitt doesn't. But let's just say that we could find a correlation between them. So if your well-hit rate, he's he's uh, 60, uh, he's like 70 points better. So he's almost a 50% better than the league average in, in well-hit rate. So, and, and you said his, his Babbitt is... Yeah, around 370, 380, yep. Okay, and the major league average is about 295 or so? Something like that, yep. So I would say that even when you kind of back out the strikeouts and the, and the homers, which, which um, you know, one sample includes and the other doesn't, I would expect a player with a well-hit rate that's 50% better than league average to have a BABIP of about 380. Now, he may just stop hitting the ball so well. Like, maybe that's the randomness. But it's, it's much harder to say that a guy is lucky because he's hitting the ball well and getting a lot of hits. It's much harder to say that than it is to say a guy is lucky because his BABIP is so high. You know what I mean? Like, one, one thing is, is more skill-oriented, and one thing we just accept is just, like, completely random. But if hitting the ball well is skill... And if Saunders is really good this year at the skill of hitting the ball well, then obviously his BABIP should be high, right? Oh, I entirely believe that that's the case. So we proved long ago at BaseballHQ.com that the prevailing wisdom a few years ago was that because pitcher BABIP was around 300, so was all hitter BABIP, and that they would all regress to that level. And of course, it turned out that Manny Ramirez's BABIP was 380 or 390 for his career. I mean, he just because he hit the ball hard and, and Willie Bloomquist was, you know, 270 or 280 because he didn't. And so we started to realize that these hitters set their own BABIP levels from which they may diverge. And that's where you look for the regression potentials and opportunities. And I entirely agree that hitting the ball hard is a core skill. I mean, it's a guy who's got good hand-eye coordination. He's got good hip turn. He does everything well, and therefore he hits the ball hard. It's also an indicator for health. Like, that's why a lot of people discount players being hot or players being cold. But those can be, like, Conforto can just maybe have a bad wrist that we're going to find out, you know, in October. Yeah, that wrist was a problem all year. Um, but in Saunders' case, it could just be like, this guy's finally healthy. He's completely 100% healthy for maybe the first time in however many years it's been. Yeah, back since uh, his age 25 year, I think, with Seattle, he stole a bunch of bases and had a good offensive year. I don't think he's about to steal any bases in Toronto. They don't run that much, and plus they're probably a little leery of him uh, running around on that um delicate knee shall we say but uh so to to add all this up if you if you were a michael saunders owner you you'd still be hanging on to him yeah i would actually because i don't think you know nobody's going to every everybody's going to be suspicious when you're trying to sell saunders they're, they're not going to pay 100 cents on the dollar for for his current stat production so it's just a question of 
are you willing to lock in the profits? You paid so little for him that even if somebody gives you 80 cents on the dollar for his current stat value, you feel like you're making money. And that can be a good trade, especially if you need another commodity, say like pitching or saves or whatever it is to like, you know, give yourself a better chance to um, win your league's championship. That could actually be a good trade. But nobody is going to turn around and give you 100 cents on the dollar. And of course, a lot depends on on your own confidence in yourself and your ability to arbitrage the the somewhat less than one hundred percent profit you're going to get off Michael Saunders by picking the guy off his team that you think he's miscalculating on that you are more correctly calculating on and maybe pick up a second profit that way. That's a confidence in your player analysis acumen. Yeah, and it might be like say you need pitching and and like a trade that I could see is somebody offering you Lackey for Saunders, right? Yeah, I mean. You know, that to me seems like a fair trade. I don't think it's, given the quality of the hitting and, and, the, and, and the fact that hitting has more value and pitching is more volatile, um, I think that's about 80 cents on the dollar. Um, and Lackey is a guy that obviously, given his age, could, could uh, hit a wall at any point, really. Um, but that's kind of a deal that you can get done that I think would be fair, and I think it could make sense for a Saunders owner to do that if he doesn't need that power that Saunders is providing. It's all contextual. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal. And in uh, your Yahoo Sports column, By the Numbers, Michael, you had a power ranking the relievers, rating relief pitchers all across baseball. Before we talk about individual players on your list, what was the method you used? I did an index of two stats, the strikeouts minus walks. Uh, stats. I do it by innings pitch. You could do the percentages. I just like the innings pitch because... When a guy pitches a game, you see the box score. You see he had, you know, six walks and, and uh, I mean, six strikeouts in one walk and, and, and six innings. And you can kind of figure out, like, what that is much more easy, easily than figuring out how many batters he faced and doing it that way. So I think it's just, like, more intuitive and more simple. So that's pretty much the reason why I do it. The, the, the uh, other stat that I used, is isolated slugging allowed, which, you know, is kind of a proxy for well-hit rate, but I just felt like using it. Like, I know there's a consensus in the statistical community that that number doesn't stabilize for so many plate appearances for a pitcher, uh, uh, batter's face, I should say, that it's essentially worthless. But I reject that notion because I think while the, um, in a technical sense, maybe the actual number is not uh, something that stabilizes. Uh, I think the direction certainly stabilizes. So I think even at smaller samples of innings, especially for uh, even a relief number of innings, um, you can state confidently that a player who has a career of being really good in isolated slugging allowed is going to be really good at it in in the in the coming year, although you don't know exactly what that number is going to be, it might just be twenty percent better than average, or it might be eighty percent better than average. But it's still better than average, is my point. So basically, I think that's an important stat for relievers because we want our relievers and our closers, especially, to have to give up three hits to allow a run, not one or two. 
I remember years ago, we have this uh, metric at BaseballHQ.com called Pure Quality Starts, and it's a, a way of rating us a game-by-game, a, game, uh, a starter game-by-game, game, and they still do it. They've changed the thresholds. And I did one for relief pitchers, and one of my rules for this uh, system, which uh, worked, uh, was that if a if a relief pitcher allowed a home run in his appearance, he automatically got a zero for that appearance because that's the one thing a reliever can't do. So it sounds like you're building in these extra base hits as a real disqualifier for excellence among relievers. Yeah, and I think what it does is it, it, it um, eliminates the inherent volatility of BABIP, right? Because it's the quality of the hit that matters. The, my problem with BABIP is that it treats all hits on balls in play equally, and they're not equal. I mean, it's way worse to give up a double than it is to give up a single, right? So, um, and, and obviously, that doesn't even account for homers. So I think the ISO allowed gives you a, a, a better sense of the, the quality of, of the pitches, um, irrespective of the walks and the strikeouts, just as far as, like, the hit quality that the that the pitcher is allowing. Okay, so we're monitoring these relief pitchers for their uh, the difference between strikeouts and walks. Obviously, the greater the difference, the better. And for their isolated power allowed, not surprisingly, Aroldis Chapman was number one on the list. But you said that your number two guy was, and I'm quoting you here, a shock. Who was the number two guy, and why were you so shocked? Well, I was shocked because you know, it's, it's Harris on the Astros, and he hadn't given up an extra base hit. So I'm, like, looking right now to, to see if, he, if, if that's still the case. But um, he was near a record for starting the season without allowing an extra base hit. And I'm looking, uh, I'm looking now to see, yeah, he still hasn't. He still has not allowed an extra base hit. Now he's at tw- 125. Um, plate appearances. So that's quite an achievement. I mean, if a guy's not going to give up any extra base hits, he's going to be really hard to score on. And and if you look at him and you say, well, he's getting really lucky with his batting average on balls and play, it's like, well, who cares if all the hits he gives up are singles and he's not walking anybody? It's going to be really hard to score runs off this guy. That's an interesting point. Uh, who else on the list surprised you or make uh, any other comments you thought were interesting off of your list of power ranking uh, the relievers? Well, you know, Papelbon looks like he's just, like, finished. So, But I sort of knew that, but when you see it so starkly in black and white, um, then I think you could really make an assessment that he would be a guy that, um, given that he's on the disabled list right now, if you own him, I would be just looking to make other plans saves for the balance of the year, I would not be counting on Papelbon coming back and being the team's closer. I mean, clearly, that's a team that needs a dominant closer uh, via the trade market, and there are going to be so many available. I mean, heck, the Yankees have three of them, and the Nationals have a stacked minor league system, so that trade sort of writes itself. I was going to ask you about that. There's uh, quite a lot of rumors about the Yankees. Uh, they have those three uh, dominant relievers at the back end of their bullpen. There's a lot of talk that, of course, Chapman, I think, his contract ends this year. They haven't re-signed him, so he's a premium trade chip. And uh, unfortunately for owners in American League-only formats, uh, most of the suitors with the, with the goods to offer are outside the league, and in a lot of leagues that means you lose the stats. How likely do you think it is that the Yankees will trade Chapman and or Miller? And if so, how likely is it that they get traded out of the league? 
It's, it, I think it's very likely that they're going to trade uh, two of those guys um, because they really need to rebuild that farm system. And uh, those are assets that are generally easy to replace, and they have such currency, especially at this stage of the year, that you're going to get more, I think, for the dominant reliever. Um, in season, it's the rare trade, I think, where you actually get more in season than you do off season. Usually teams will be like, well, we'll just wait and trade this guy in the offseason because it will get more because there will be more teams competing for the services. While that's true generally for, for players, I think for a closer, the, the magnitude of the need and is, is just so great that teams are willing to pay like almost anything for that guy. And so I think um, I don't know like who would be more desirable from the perspective of the Nationals, but since Miller's contract is, is so friendly – for at least a couple more years, I could see him having the most value, and I could see the Yankees just really holding out and say, you know, you got to give us Giolito. I mean, I don't know if the, I don't, I don't know if the Nationals would do that, but um, I think they would be tempted. It's awfully remunerative for a team to get into the playoffs and make a deep run, and if they perceive that their problem is that they don't have that power arm to reinforce the, the bullpen, then, yeah, I mean, it's it's like uh, dealing in your fantasy league. The guy who's two points short of a championship when you hit the trade deadline is the one who has the greatest incentive to deal. I've also seen that the, the Cubs have been mentioned, the Giants have been mentioned, although I don't think they have an awful lot to offer in the terms of prospects. They're an older team and have had so much success that they don't have quite the uh, quite the uh, farm system that some of the others do. But how about the Dodgers? They've got a lot of good young talent, and uh, looks like their bullpen is one of the things that they could really use a little bit of shoring up, and they have the, they have the players to offer. I don't understand why they don't move the you know their their kid pitcher who can't even uh, I mean he's gonna he's so innings limited and he's actually pitching really well now in the strikeout walk metrics metrics for the last month like why not have uh, Urias like in the pen wouldn't that be the the play like the no cost move Yeah, you'd think so, and it's uh, it's. Kind of a, a well-established idea that you want these young guys to get their major league experience without having the pressure and the physical wear and tear of being starters. I remember back in the day. I remember David Price came up to pitch in the playoffs as a young, a young player with Tampa, and the first thing they did was put him in the bullpen for that for that uh, end of season run, and he pitched fantastically, and he didn't put a lot of wear and tear on it. It's a great idea. I wonder why more teams don't do it. Uh, that's a, that's an excellent question. I, I will say you were mentioning the Giants. They do have one really elite trade ship, and that's uh, uh, Phil Bickford, who is uh, just was promoted to A ball from the um, lower A level uh, in the Sally League. Now he's in San Jose, and he's had one start, and he pitched six innings and had 13 Ks and no walks in his one start. He's 20 year old. Uh, righty, former first-round pick, and dynasty players probably know, or and if they don't, they should know that uh, draft um, order is is a pretty good predictor of major league success. So the fact that he was a first-round pick is a big deal there too. And for the year, if you combine the levels, he's got like 57 and third innings with 66 Ks and 13 walks. So I think that. I think the Giants would be in a great position to use him to get just about anything they wanted. 
I like that idea about past first round picks, especially if they flamed out the first time around. Uh, at Baseball HQ, they call it the 10 paths of hype or something like that. And Alex Rodriguez was the star example. They bring him up too early and he, he struggles and everybody gets off of him. And then he turns out, hey, they knew what they were doing when they drafted this guy at the top of the first round. Uh, you know who else I think might have a shot at some bullpen support in the American League is Texas. They, they have a bit of a need down there and they have tons of prospects. They do have tons of prospects. That now the question is, do they trade Profar? It's still like kind of unclear where Profar is going to be playing long term. Yeah, they seem to lack a slot for him, especially once the, everything gets back settled down with uh, injury situations and suspensions. And they and can't stuff. send him down. No. Yeah, I mean, like he's so so. It's kind of tough. I mean, it's a it's a good problem to have, um, but you know they're not going to trade Mazzara. And I don't, I don't know if Gallo would would bring back ample returns. Maybe. Well, I don't know. What's your sense of that? Well, of course, teams now are so conscious of uh, of the uh, deeper metrics of these guys. Gallo's a, an attractive guy. He plays a decent third base for one thing, which uh, adds to his allure. I think a little bit because he's not your typical lumbering first base DH only type who really restricts your abilities. But when I look at Texas, of course, I don't think Mazzaro's going anywhere either. But Lewis Brinson seems like he's going to be a little bit blocked over the years, and he's a pretty pretty decent prospect. And they had a guy uh, picked in the first round. Um, last year, Dylan Tate, he's a right-hander, and they had a selection in uh, 2014. Luis Ortiz, I think, is also doing well in the minor leagues. So they have definitely got the chips to play. The question is, how badly do they need to trade those chips to shore up their bullpen? And I would argue they could probably uh, they could probably stand to do that because they're in a position to make a run. Don't they still need Brinson for center field? I mean, like, isn't he their almost like short-term answer there? I think Desmond's the short-term answer there. He's been playing pr- pretty decently, and he's certainly been hitting. After this year, I mean, isn't it like one and done for Desmond in Texas? It is, but, you know, if they if they win the World Series, they'll be flush with cash. There's maybe a bit bit of money coming in from other sources because you're a world champion. Hey, maybe they say you did good for us. We, we helped you out when you needed it. You know, maybe they can come to some kind of an accommodation. I don't know. It's just an interesting thing. You know, every, every one of these trades, when you talk about should they trade the prospect for the short-term help and the, the the underlying question is, can you afford to do that given the long-term realities? But at some point, a team looking at this kind of deal has to say, to hell with the long-term realities. I got a chance to win a world championship, and that's a 50 or $60 million shot in the arm. I got to take it. Exactly. Exactly. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports, the Wall Street Journal. And Michael, a little earlier in the month, in your Yahoo Sports column by the numbers, you rated starting pitchers with a particular aim of identifying guys who might be in a mixed league free agent pool and who might be desirable as grabs off there. And I was surprised to see Danny Duffy of the Royals uh, near the top of that list. Uh, How did this ranking work and why were you uh, putting Duffy as such a winner? Well, I just did strikeouts, the strikeouts and walk numbers for the last month, and then I re- re-ran it just to see like where Duffy would be, and he's still eighth, even in the last month. You know, so obviously this is like a, a different one-month sample. I think a one-month sample, as I explained in that Yahoo article, is reasonable for a pitcher because pitchers uh, change for so many reasons so quickly uh, with the adjustments that they can make and just with health that. Uh, and they change positively and for the worse, that I think that it, it behooves us to look at uh, reasonable, smaller samples. 
I would never do this for a hitter. I would never say, oh, this hitter's really hot for the last month, pick him up. Or this hitter's really cold for the last month, forget about him. Uh, but I, would, I am inclined to do that with pitchers. Obviously, you want the biggest reasonable samples you can get, but if you want to identify guys that are just feeling it at the moment and may be able to um, continue that level of performance in that direction, I think, I think it, it is a, a good thing because a lot of times the full-season sample, especially at this stage of the season, can mask um, short-term uh, performance variants. So Duffy's still ranked eighth in the most recent sample, and, and it was about one uh, strikeout minus walk uh, per inning, um, which is elite. So, you know, that put him actually between Shoemaker and Michael Pineda. Like, if you could figure out Pineda, just let me know, because <laughs> I have no answers. Obviously, he just keeps giving up homers, so... The ERA is never really in line with his strikeout and walk dominance. I liked what you said about the this idea that pitchers can adjust more quickly and therefore it's justifiable to use a shorter sample. When I was doing my, I, I play in this Tout Wars uh, daily league, it's, and and part of my preparation for that is to look at the starting pitchers w- with regard to how they've been doing. And I've futzed around with various levels. At first I was using a calendar year, then I was using the entire season to date and s- combinations thereof. And what I settled on, Michael, was the last eight starts. It seemed like the last eight starts was capturing any positive or negative changes that had taken place that were, as you said, sometimes they can be masked if you go into a, into a larger time frame because there are so many extenuating circumstances surrounding, especially starting pitchers, health, the, uh, the ability to make these adjustments, as you said, coaching, um, mechanical changes, all of these kind of things. And uh, so eight starts worked it for me, which is about a month's worth, as you say. Yeah, you know, uh, a month's worth would be about six, six or eight. Like, eight is good. I'm just using a month just because it's, like, easy to explain to to uh, readers. But, but, yeah, I mean, eight starts seems totally reasonable as well. Some of the guys there that I thought were noteworthy, if you just do the last month for the, from the date of this, you know, uh, interview, you obviously have Shoemaker, who's just, like, winning championships for the people who, who picked him up early. Um uh, Duffy, whose ERA doesn't correlate. And then there's a bunch of guys who, whose ERAs don't correlate to really good strikeout and walk numbers uh, in the last month, and that's Keuchel, um, Smiley, uh, Adam Morgan, um, Colin McHugh even. Uh, and I don't know what to make out of any of those guys. I think um, obviously a lot more variance in ERA, but... If the ERAs are so out of whack, I would just generally avoid those guys, even if their strikeout numbers are really good. Because I think you can afford to be more choosy on a list like this, where you can get guys whose ERAs are, are solid and their strikeout uh, and walk performance is, is uh, dominant. Uh, and, and their full season is masking that. So I think there's a really good chance that in many formats these guys will be available on the waiver wire, so you can afford to be a little bit more uh, picky. Like, up until recently, you could have gotten Shoemaker on the waiver wire. Yeah, when when I hear you talk about guys whose ERAs are, are seemingly out of sync with their strikeout walk numbers, you have elite strikeout walk but not elite ERA, is the culprit, have you found often home runs allowed or, or extra base hits allowed? Because it seems like that would be the elephant in the room in these situations. Guys are not allowing a lot of base runners, but so many of them are scoring because of, of relatively inflated home run numbers. 
Yeah, definitely. But the the tricky thing there is it takes way more uh, uh, batter space for a, a home run fly ball rate, say, to stabilize, or just a home run rate, however you want to look at it, than it does for the strikeout and walk numbers to stabilize. Like a, a month sample, and definitely your eight-start sample, will put you definitely at the stabilization rate for strikeout rate um, and pretty close for, for walks, right? So, so that's a bettable sample, in other words. So for homers, um, I think you got to go a little bit further back and not focus necessarily on the one-month sample. But at this point of the year, it's, easy, it's reasonable to look at a full-year sample for the home run rate. And if you have stabilization, which we don't really, but one of the things you could do is you could just – what stabilization really means is you just kind of take like what the league average is and what the player's allowing and you split the difference. So if you essentially do that with some of these pitchers who are really home run prone, they'll still be home run prone. They'll still be bad at homers, but you're, there you're discounting just the randomness of running into the wrong hitter. I mean, how many times have we seen a pitcher make what we think is a good pitch and it's a home run anyway? Yeah, and just for the the sake of clarity, I looked up Fangraphs uh, stabilization points for pitchers. Home runs is a little over thirteen hundred batters, and home runs per fly balls is right around four hundred fly balls. So definitely, that's uh, a long time coming. Yeah, you're never gonna get it. <laughs> yeah, that that's we right. We want to do something. Yeah, you know, like we can't we can't wait that long. So um, I think it's reasonable to say Michael Pineda's got a home run problem. Yeah, probably not as big a problem as it looks like right now. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I I, I think you could you could look at the list like that you come up with based on strikeouts to walks, and then in your due diligence as a fantasy owner, you look at the list and you go, I'm just going to check each of these guys for his career level home run problems, and if one of them, you know, most of them will be around one stri- one home run per nine innings, uh, you know, ten percent home run per fly ball rate. If you've got a guy who's consistently twenty percent uh, home run per fly ball rate and he doesn't ever seem to fix it, you could say that's a guy I'm not interested in, notwithstanding all of his other skill. Exactly. Or there could be a guy who's had a home run problem, but not as significant as it is this year. Or there could be a guy like C.C. Sabathia, who suddenly wasn't giving up any home runs. Uh, and, and that's even adjusting. He's not even really necessarily a ground ball pitcher anymore either. So his home run rate was insanely low. I mean, I think it was like uh, 2.6% of fly balls going into his last start, and then he gave up a three-run homer. It's like, yeah, well... That makes sense because there's no way CC Sabathia is non-randomly, total skill-wise, all of a sudden so good at not allowing homers. <laughs> yeah, well said. Uh, these things, you know, we like to try to quantify everything and predict everything, but like you said before uh, a few moments ago, they're still human beings. They're still going to hit home runs when they ought not to, and there's going to be the occasional, uh, you know, dunker that flits around the pesky pole and it's going to look the next day in the box score like it was a 460-foot drive to dead center field. There's a lot of variability still in it, which is what makes the games fun. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal. And You recently wrote in the journal that the key to the Cubs World Series prospects is not going to be their offense, which is fantastic this year, but their starting rotation. Why did you reach that conclusion? Well, because they just have... I think the best starting rotation in terms of uh, ERA, um, at, uh, obviously the season is in progress, um, in in the history of the live ball era. So, you know, and I think the sample that we have right now is significant enough to know that their starting rotation is at least really good. 
Um, obviously, no rotation could be as good in terms of ERA as what the Cubs are are currently producing. Uh, so I'm not saying that that's likely to continue at that rate, but it's still likely to be really good. And when you combine that with their offense, I mean, their run differential at the time I wrote the article was the greatest through 66 games, I think, is when I wrote that article, it was, the, was the greatest run differential since the 1939 Yankees. 1939 Yankees were pretty good. Yeah, not a bad club. <laughs> and, and I understand, you, you know, that, that if you look at the advanced analytics, that you could say that there's a, a, a lot of good luck in their ERA. Um, and obviously when you adjust, make the adjustments for FIP or XFIP or however you do it, um, you're going to come up with significantly higher numbers. But when I look at the well-hit rates that their pitchers have allowed, um, they, the three of the five are an elite territory, and the other two are, are average. So I don't really expect significant regression uh, for, for that staff. Like their ERA for the rest of the year, instead of being 2.3, you know, uh, as a starting staff, might end up being three, but that's still excellent and, and definitely places them as a World Series favorite when you factor in their excellent offense as well. I, I also looked at their expected ERAs. That's a baseballhq.com metric where we look at all their skills and say this is what their ERA should be given normal luck. And some of these guys are being extraordinarily lucky by those measures. I mean, their strand rates are way above the normal 71 72%. Some of them are over 80% strand rate, which means that there's a lot of runners reaching base who aren't scoring. And their hit rates are way under the 30% pitching norm. But given the regression, leaving aside the chance that this rotation is going to be very good and is going to lead the Cubs to great success. What about in fantasy terms on an individual basis? Are any of these guys sell high candidates? Uh, I would say Hamill, when you look at the well-hit numbers. Like, if you want to cross-reference, um, I mean, everybody's going to know what the FIP and, and XFIP is. Um, but if you look at the hit quality that they're allowing, you could say that Hamill has been lucky in, in the sense that his well-hit rate allowed is about league average. It's 142, league average is 138. Lackey's 132, which is still really good. That's like B. Um, uh, that's, that if you were to grade it, you would give it like a B. Uh, and then when you get to the other guys, Lester's 102. Uh, Arietta's uh, .092. And the best pitcher on the staff, and the guy that I think most people would be looking to trade uh, I think most aggressively is probably the guy that you should be keeping, and that's uh, Hendricks, who's .089, better than Arietta, and limiting hit quality. That's pretty amazing. And before we leave this topic, uh, is there any concern in your mind about John Lester and his well-advertised inability to throw to the uh, infield bases? Uh, I was talking with Gene McCaffrey last week for Baseball HQ Radio, our mutual friend, and he said he just doesn't understand why every base runner that reaches first base against Chicago when Lester's pitching isn't stealing second and third. I mean, why wouldn't you be? He can't throw over there. Yeah, I, you know, that it's just because teams just don't steal bases anymore. It's just like baseball now is like station to station, you know, three true outcomes, like everybody plays the same, everybody's looking for the, for the, for the big hit, you know, the home run. So um, I think... He, 
Lester, like in the 1970s and early 1980s, would have just been, they would have made his life so miserable, he might not have even been able to pitch. I mean, what would the, what would the 1980, you know, five Cardinals have done to John Lester? How many bases would they steal in a game? Nine? <laughs> well, every guy who got aboard. Yeah, exactly. Like, even if he was pitching well, he would give up, like, nine stolen bases. <laughs> Assuming you would allow the the nine base runners, which uh, he's been pitching well enough that maybe that's not a certainty. But here you have a guy, and we're looking at him from. The, I know that the prevailing philosophy with most teams is, well, you know, a, a blast, a, a bloop, a walk, and a, a blast, or however that goes, and you're going to pick up that's your three runs. But Lester's not allowing base runners. He's not walking guys. He's not allowing a ton of hits. He's certainly not allowing any home runs, 0.8 per uh, nine innings, according to baseball reference. If you're the opposing team and you're looking at this and you do get a guy aboard, you think, you've got to think, my chance of scoring in the traditional way against this guy is relatively limited. And my chances of stealing my way around to the point where I can score the run on a single instead of having to have an, an extra base hit or two singles strung together improves quite a bit. Why don't they see that? I, I don't know. Like, maybe stolen base, maybe guys just don't know how to do it. Like, you know how we say, like, you know, why don't, why don't, why don't you lay down a bunt? Like, they don't know how to bunt. They're not going to bunt. And I don't think they should bunt. Don't make me, like, a bunt person. But what I'm saying, even in the <laughs> rare instance where it's like, we could really use a bunt here, um, no one knows how to do it. So even if you wanted to do it, you can't do it. So maybe we're almost at that point with stolen bases. It seems sometimes like all you'd have to do is take a walking lead and kind of just stroll down there to second because there's just no no way he's going to throw behind you to pick you off and uh, because he's so whatever his problem is. You, I don't think you have to be Ricky Henderson to steal second is the theory that says, why don't you steal every time? Yeah, but, you know, I think as far as uh, projecting Lester going forward, I completely discount it. Like, it's just not – if it hasn't been a factor – given the magnitude of his problems to date, why worry about it going forward? If you're a fantasy owner, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, true enough. I mean, if nobody's done it yet. Maybe they just aren't going to, and it ceases to become a, a, a problem at all for the Cubs or for their fantasy owners. Interesting point of view. It's one of the more interesting stories in baseball to me is this whole thing, because I'm old enough to remember back to the days of Steve Sachs couldn't throw. Remember, there's all these various guys who just stopped being able to make st really routine throws. Exactly. You know, uh, but that's something you can't really hide because somebody eventually is going to hit the ball to your second baseman. But if nobody is really going to threaten your, your uh, lefty pitcher when they get on base, you know, and there's guys that just maybe they see the lefty looking right at them. They're just not going to take a big lead. It doesn't matter if the guy can't throw over. That's just their mindset. The whole thing is very weird. It's a weird thing that he can't do it, and it's a weird thing that nobody's responding to it by just stealing bases hand over fist. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Michael Salfino from Yahoo Sports and from the Wall Street Journal. And, Michael, during the season, we ask our experts to mention some studs and duds. We don't really have a rationale for it, but the general rule is a stud is a guy you'd like to have in your team, a dud not so much. Uh, let's start with the hitters in the American League. Who's a stud hitter for you that you'd like to have on your roster? I'm really believing in Evan Longoria, and I think, like, given his injury history, he's the guy that you, you, you may be able to get below the actual value to date of the stats. The, the, I don't know if this is still true, but when I recently checked, when I was looking at home runs, road splits for major league teams, I, I think it was 
slugging percentage at home, they were ahead of even the Red Sox, the the Rays, which is not something that you would expect. I mean, so maybe that's just a really good park for homers, especially the way it's playing this year. And his power just seems like totally legitimate. And given his injury history, and I understand that that's a risk for the for the owner who's seeking to acquire Longoria. I think that you could probably still get a deal on him. And in the National League, I like Jake Lamb. Uh, he does really well in the well-hit metrics, as Longoria does. Um, the power seems real. He is young, uh, and, and he just doesn't seem to have the kind of currency that, that I think he should have given his staff performance in the park that he plays in. How about a dud hitter in the American League? I'd have to go with Dustin Pedroia. You know, obviously he's in that great lineup, but his his hit quality is really poor. So uh, I just, you know, I think the the ship has kind of sailed on him. So um, he would be he would be the hitter that that I think that you know somebody still might be willing to pay for that that I would absolutely be willing to sell. Yeah, he'd be the, exactly the kind of guy, if you believed that he's a, a guy you want to maybe cash in on, is, is perfect. Everybody loves the Red Sox, or enough people love the Red Sox that there's a natural affinity there. Pedroia is a past MVP, past Rookie of the Year, a name, a big name. And boy, it shouldn't be this way, but sometimes a big name can really sway people into making trades that they really ought not to. Exactly. Like I had somebody in, um, in my American League only league, I was able to trade Dustin Pedroia for Corey Kluber, which uh, this was when Kluber's ERA was was in the high fours, but his strikeout walk numbers were excellent. And in the last month since that trade, his uh, Kluber's ERA has normalized to the point where uh, it, the strikeouts and the walks kind of predicted. Dustin Pedroia right now in 818 OPS, that'd be the kind of guy that would attract some offers, I'm pretty sure. Uh, who's a dud hitter in the National League for you? My dead hitter for the National League, I'll go with Melvin Upton, who is uh, doing poorly in just about all of the inside-edge metrics. They, they assess players in 23 categories. He's uh, a C-level hitter, if you were to give him a grade, and, and that's poor for any starting player. And, and his well-hit rate is 130, and I think you know he's a guy that's probably going to regress to the level that we expected earlier in the year, and I think his early season performance still gives him some tradable currency. So in this sense, assessing a hitter is kind of like swimming. You want to stay above sea level. Yeah, exactly. Melvin Upton's having a pretty good year, a pretty attractive-looking year, especially with the 15 stolen bases. So again, uh, people will be a little leery of his past few years' record, but it's uh, awfully enticing to grab 15 bags where you can get them, so it might be a good sell-high candidate as well. Let's move over to the mound um, uh, in the American League. Who's a stud pitcher you really like? Oh, I'll go with Kluber. I mean, I, I think I think he's uh, super elite, and the ERA lately has has um, stabilized to the point where we would expect, and I think that that's going to continue for the balance of the year. How about in the National League, a stud pitcher you like? I don't want to really, like, cheat with uh, Jacob deGrom, but I think that there's just, like, so much noise regarding his uh, lack of velocity, and I think that that's still, like, kind of lingering in the air. I think if you own deGrom, um, and I I think he's a player where his owners are going to know how well he's pitched of late, but if you own DeGrom, you should definitely be holding on to him, and you should expect easily top 10 fantasy production for the balance of the season. 
And in the American League, who's a dud pitcher, a guy you would like to sell high on or just get rid of or certainly not trade for? I'm going to go with Michael Fulmer, an ex-Met, who I think is going to be uh, a good pitcher, but his ERA of late makes no sense. His strikeout and walk uh, performance has regressed mightily to well below league average. And in that period in the last month, he still has a, a 0.4 ERA, like 0.48, I think. So um, it, it makes no sense. He's defying gravity. Michael Fulmer is one of those guys that if you've ridden him into a competitive position in your league so far this year, especially in a keeper league, exactly the kind of guy you want to be dealing because you should be able to get a much more established, ready guy because everybody's interested in the young rookie that you probably have at a discounted salary. For, for that matter, the Tigers could probably probably look at doing the same thing because I believe that his innings are going to be restricted as well this year. Yeah, you're probably only looking at about Twelve more starts, I would say, even with the innings caps, where he's probably not going to go more than five or six innings in any of those starts. And then they're going. But what do you do if you're contending? Like, are are they going to uh, do what sort of the Mets did last year and just let guys like blow through their innings levels just because they might be in a position to win a World Series? I mean, how do you sit a guy who's one of your you know three best starters for? a reason that's purely speculative. I mean, nobody knows if, if innings limits prevent injuries, and in fact, all the data would suggest that it does not prevent injuries since injuries are happening more frequently than ever. Maybe they could do uh, what the Toronto Blue Jays are reportedly considering, which is taking Aaron Sanchez, who has an innings cap, and they're going to move him out of the rotation into the bullpen for a month or six weeks to cut down on his innings per week and then put him back in the rotation as they spool up for the stretch run and, and kind of have their cake and eat it too in a, in a, in a manner of speaking. And f- in, if you think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense if you're trying to control the number of pitches thrown and still get some effective use out of a guy that you're paying. Why not do it that way? Put him in the, Take him out of the rotation, put him in the bullpen, cut his innings, but still get some, some value. Exactly. And in the National League, who's a dud pitcher for you? In the National League, I would just say that I'm, I'm very bearish on Patrick Corbin. Like I don't think that anybody is is really necessarily believing him. He's not really like a sell-high candidate, but I think if you were expecting Corbin to do well, as I was, he's a guy that I have on my score sheet team, and I thought that um, given how he returned from his elbow surgery last year, I was expecting him to be a solid uh, number three slash number two fantasy starter in mixed formats, and I just don't think that's going to happen. His well-hit rate, this year is uh, 175, which is, you know, let's call that about um, 30% worse than league average. So he he is a pitcher who I think is going to struggle to to uh, perform going forward. And Degrom's actually pretty high in that regard too. The other guy in the National League that, uh, uh, but 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 I but I am way more bullish on Degrom given his strikeout dominance. And, and his walk rates in, in the last month. I think he's just rounding into health. The other guy in the National League that I think is is um, somebody that owners are holding on to, hoping that he's going to turn his season around, is Liriano. I just don't really see uh, Liriano rebounding at all. The uh, Ray Searage magic spell wears out after a while is what you're telling me? I get Like, he never got the memo about, like, conserving pitches, I don't think. You know, his first pitch strike rate is 
league average is 61. Like, how could you throw first pitch strikes 52% of the time and survive in the majors? Like, I, I mean, I don't care what you need to do to get the ball over the plate. You have to do it. You can't start half of your batters 1-0. and No, and if you do, there's a substantial difference. Uh, I looked it up, and the OPS across Major League Baseball for 2016 in at-bats that start 1-0 and is 832. That's an 832 OPS. If the at-bat starts 0-1, the OPS is 610. That's a 222-point difference between 1-0 and 0-1. and It's staggering, and it's something that really we ought to pay a lot of attention to, as you suggest. Geez, Michael, this has been great. Tell us where listeners can read more of your work. Well, you can find me at the Wall Street Journal uh, archives, and you can just search me for Yahoo, and you can read my Yahoo Fantasy um, uh, pitching by the numbers columns. Sometimes we do a hitting by the numbers. We throw that in there. Those come out on Friday. And also, you could always catch me my work via Twitter, which is at Michael Salfino. And I have to say, uh, I follow you, and you're a terrific follow, not just for baseball, but of course, uh, there's a lot of political goings-on in the United States right now that are pretty interesting, and you're pretty vocal about those, and, and a lot of fun as well. Uh, before I let you go, uh, I know you spend a good amount of time looking at fantasy football. Apparently, there's a fantasy-related game involving football. I didn't know. Uh, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not Canadian football, Patrick. You know, years ago, I, I, when I worked in the newspaper business in Saskatchewan, where, where CFL football is huge, one of the guys in our newsroom tried to set up a CFL fantasy football league, and it was actually working pretty well, because in Regina, in Saskatchewan, where we live, there's lots of people who are interested in it. But the problem is, with only nine teams, you're really restricted in how many guys you can have on a roster, which kind of takes a lot of the fun out of it. Yeah, you have to have a small league. Either few owners or very small rosters, and either way you don't get a lot of the advantage in playing fantasy NFL football, which is very popular in Canada as well, is the opportunity to have you know a fairly deep roster and you're picking your starters every week and trying to fool yourself into thinking you know what you're doing that way. Right. I wanted to ask you... Uh, in a, in a normal league, and I don't really even know if there is such a thing as a normal league, but who, who do you think this year is the top quarterback, wide receiver, and running back for the draft? I'll just straight out say that I think Drew Brees is going to be the best quarterback just because he um, he's always in that class, and you're not going to have to pay for it. I mean, I, at the FSTA draft, I think he was the sixth or seventh quarterback off the board. That's absurd. So, so he would be the guy. I... I hate taking quarterback early in the draft, but if somebody is going to let me take the, the, the quarterback that I think is very bettable to be the best quarterback in the NFL in terms of fantasy with in the, in the seventh round after six quarterbacks are off the board, I'm all over that. I mean, I think that's like a, a slam dunk pick. Um, the best wide receiver, you know, I will just say uh, Odell Beckham Jr. just because He's just so elite, and he also, I think, offers more touchdown upside than Antonio Brown, though you could obviously make a very strong case for Antonio Brown the more your league rewards points per reception, which is a format that I loathe. But um, if, if the scoring for points per reception is, is very generous, then I think he, he is in clearly in the Beckham class, although I think Beckham has a chance to even beat him in that format as well. Um, and as far as the best running back, uh, I am a zero running back advocate, meaning that I will um, discount running backs twice as much as I discount wide receivers for injury risk, meaning that most of the running backs, once I adjust for those projected points, 
will slide out of my ability to to uh, pick them in the early round, so I will end up with wide receivers and tight ends uh, in in those picks. But if I were to have to take one running back this year, uh, it would be David Johnson. And I understand a lot of people are going to say that Chris Johnson is going to get carries and that you know the Cardinals really aren't all in with him being an every down back, but I just can't believe that that's true. Johnson was uh, David Johnson was so dominant last year that I think he's going to get a bell cow's uh, allocation of of a very high flying Cardinals offense, and he's also going to dominate not just on the ground, um, but also as a receiver with his elite receiving skills. Let me try to catch you off guard here with a real uh, curveball. And talking about football and baseball, so I'm going to use the curveball analogy. I once got in a discussion with some friends of mine about the greatest fantasy baseball season ever, and it came down to Mickey Mantle's uh, uh, season, his MVP season. I think it was 1956 where he had 50-some-odd stolen bases, 50-some-odd home runs at 350 or something like that. Just a fantastic year. I think he won the Triple Crown. And uh, and Ricky Henderson's 100 stolen base year, he had 16 or 17 home runs as well. So between those two, what do you think is the greatest fantasy fantasy football season ever, even predating the fantasy football era if you if you need to? Well, I think it would depend on your on your league scoring, but I think if you adjust for the context of that season, then probably Marino's epic uh, what was it, like forty eight touchdown season would would be the, the season that that would stand out the most because, you know, relative to to the league at that time, that would have probably given you the most surplus points so that was marino's 1984 season 48 touchdowns 5084 uh passing yard season in the league that uh where where passing was still somewhat suppressed or depressed passing statistics so i would say that that is probably the season where if you go back in time that would give you the greatest probability of actually winning your league's championship that year 17 interceptions though don't you lose points for that it depends on your format. You could. I, I hate that you lose points for interceptions. But, um, yeah, you would lose some points. But remember, interceptions were way up. His interception rate that year was, was 3%, and the league average that year was 4.1%. His rate was 3%. So he was actually much better than average in limiting interceptions, but obviously that was the price you paid for his incredible passing volume relative to the rest of the league. You know, when I uh, asked the question, I started thinking about the answer, and uh, the the year that jumped out at me was uh, Eric Dickerson's 2,000-yard season. I think it was in 1984, and uh, I since looked it up. It was 1984, and out of the 16 games he played, uh, one, two, three, four of them weren't 100-yard games. So he had 12 100-yard games and a 200-yard game, two 200-yard games. And in, I know in a lot of leagues you get a bonus if a guy runs for 100 or more yards, and some leagues even give a bonus for 200 or more yards. That had to be a pretty good year, too. Yeah, and you have, uh, you know, O.J. Simpson, obviously. Forget about the baggage, because we're just talking between the lines, obviously. But O.J. Simpson's 1975 was insane. Everybody talks about his... 1973 season when he obviously ran for over 2,000 yards in the 14 games, but that year he only caught six passes. I mean, the Bills that year never really threw the ball. But his 1975 season, he had 1,817 rushing yards in 14 games, 16 rushing touchdowns, and he also had 426 receiving yards on 28 catches with seven more touchdowns. 
So 23 touchdowns in 14 games. That was a pretty good year. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? Oh, it's fun to look back, and maybe uh, next time you come on, we'll have to go back through memory lane and find the great years uh, of a bunch of guys who will have a little bit better of a chance to prepare and discuss these kind of things. Michael Salfino, this has been a gas. It always is. I really appreciate you taking the time for coming on Baseball HQ Radio. Oh, I enjoyed it as always, Patrick. Michael Salfino writes for Yahoo Sports and the Wall Street Journal and is a terrific Twitter follow at Michael Salfino, S-A-L-F-I-N-O. We have our Baseball HQ commentaries coming up, but first let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com keeps you ahead of the game all season long with great content across a wide range of information. This week, Eric Flaramonte has a research article on the predictive value of the new PQS system, updating a sterling research report a year ago by some guy named David or David or something. Baseball HQ scout Chris Blessing sallies forth to the Sally League to get a first-hand eyeful of Colorado shortstop prospect Brendan Rogers, Atlanta left-handed pitching prospect Max Freed, and a couple of unrated Texas prospects. And in the GM's office, Ray Murphy has an excellent yarn about how his NFBC team has floated up the standings from the basement to the penthouse thanks to some good replacement pickups and solid performances across the board. During the season, BaseballHQ.com has daily matchups reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, team coverage including facts and flukes, and daily roster coverage and minor league scouting. And of course, we have those projections and the other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your competition. It's all only at the website with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have Playing Time, Frequent Flyers, our weekend pitcher matchups, and Masterdotes. And leading it all off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Houston first base prospect A.J. Reed is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. The Houston Astros got off to a slow start in 2016, and for the first month of the season, rookie first baseman Tyler White was one of the few bright spots. The 25-year-old White hit 250 with 5 home runs and 14 RBIs in the club's first 22 games. But when the Astros started to turn things around, White's fortunes headed in the other direction, and last week he was sent back to AAA Fresno. White's demotion creates a potential opening for first base prospect A.J. Reed. The 22-year-old Reed has the best power in the system and had a monster breakout season in 2015, hitting 340 with a 432 on on-base percentage and an impressive 612 slugging percentage. He had 30 doubles and 34 home runs between high A and double A. Reed started the season this year at AAA, and with White's strong start, it looked like he would be stuck there for most of the season. Reed has been playing very well of late, hitting 359 over his last 10 games, and for the year is now hitting 261 with 19 doubles and 10 home runs and 218 at-bats. With Marwin Gonzalez the only thing between Reed and full-time Major League at-bats, fantasy owners in A-only format should be ready to pounce once the Astros decide that Reed is ready to make his MLB debut. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on the top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes Nick Richards' look at minor league stats that forecast prospects who aren't on top 100 lists but soon could be. 
Our ongoing daily call-ups coverage has prospects like White Sox pitcher Chris Beck, Boston infielder Devin Marrero, Cincinnati potential ace Cody Reed, the Cubs catcher Wilson Contreras, and more call-ups. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or losing at-bats or innings. In this week's edition, we'll look at an upcoming spike to Evan Gaddis's value and why you shouldn't give up on Brandon Drury in Arizona. Here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. We wouldn't typically spend a whole lot of time on Jason Castro on this podcast and his struggles behind the dish in Houston. Castro is hitting below 215 over his last three seasons combined, and while he's flashed some decent power and a solid walk rate, Castro's swing and miss game is going to keep him among the bottom dwellers at catcher. Castro's continued struggles have opened the door for some playing time at catcher in Houston, which is when this segment does get relevant. Our own Jock Thompson recently reported that Evan Gaddis is getting more and more time at catcher. He probably already has catcher eligibility with 14 in-season games played, and Gaddis is well on track to qualify at catcher again, entering 2017 drafts. Gaddis was supposed to be the club's full-time DH entering the season, which significantly hurt his 2016 value. Gaddis still packs plenty of power with 11 home runs through 184 at-bats. The batting average has been an issue for Gaddis, though, as his contact rate has dipped from the mid to upper 70s down to 71% this season. A career-low 23% hit rate is bound to rise, however, though his expected batting average sits around 245, which is where we should expect him moving forward forward. But with catcher eligibility for next season, Gaddis's 30 home run power could once again be a boon to his value, both the remainder of this season and 2017. If you're looking at underrated catchers for next season already, Gaddis might be a decent place to start. To the National League, we go to the desert, where Peter O'Brien has drawn mixed reviews in his brief time in Arizona's outfield. O'Brien's known for his big-time power, as he's led the Pacific Coast League with 17 home runs this season, and we've seen that power show through to the majors, with four homers through his first 37 at-bats. But O'Brien's plate skills have been atrocious. O'Brien hasn't drawn a walk yet, and he struck out 16 times, which comes out to a 57% contact rate. Arizona is somewhat committed to giving O'Brien an extended look, but it seems obvious that he might need more seasoning. Should that happen, look for Brandon Drury to come back up to Arizona. Drury was sent down to AAA Reno after a poor June, but his year-to-date skills have been fine. Drury has a .268 expected batting average with above-average raw power metrics that have led to 8 home runs and 204 at-bats. O'Brien's continued struggles could once again open up a spot for Brandon Drury in Arizona. He's looking like a fine buy-low stash in NL-only leagues, and depending on your league rules, Drury may qualify at second and third base in addition to the outfield. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are free agent Cuban third baseman Yulieski Gurriel and Pittsburgh's starting pitching prospect Tyler Glasnow. And here to tell you about it is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. 
Rumors are swirling and flushing, with David Wright potentially out for the season. Who will be playing third base for the Mets? Will the Mets trade for Minnesota's Trevor Plouffe? Will Jose Reyes return to New York as early as next week? What about Aroldis Chapman's former teammate? Could the Yankees improve at third? In this week's edition for Good Flyers, we'll profile two players, a hitter and a pitcher, including a Cuban slugger that Aroldis Chapman has described as already having major league talent, along with a minor league starting pitcher who attended the same California high school as James Shields and Trevor Bauer. But first, what do the Yankees, Mets, Dodgers, and Astros have in common? All four teams have recently been linked to the possible signing of 32-year-old Cuban third baseman Uleski Gurriel. After defecting earlier this year, Uleski Gurriel was just granted free agency status by Major League Baseball on June 13th, allowing him to sign with any team. Although several teams could pursue Uleski Gurriel, the Mets, with David Wright out, arguably have the greatest need for Gurriel's services, especially considering that Mets third basemen are currently only batting .229 as a team. Of course, 32-year-old the Yankees third baseman Chase Headley is batting .251 with four home runs and four steals. Would Uleski Gurriel be an improvement? Possibly. Uleski Gurriel, who won a silver medal in Beijing, also batted .333 alongside Cuban teammate Ioannis Cespedes in the 2009 World Baseball Classic. However, it's important to remember that Uleski Gurriel, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Even so, Uleski Gurriel has experienced success at almost every level, including batting 305 for the Yokohama Dina Bay Stars in 2014 after being granted a special exemption by Cuba authorities to play in Japan. And he posted a 333 career batting average with 245 career home runs through 15 seasons in Cuba. Assuming Uleski Gurriel can make the adjustment to Major League Pitching the way Chicago White Sox first baseman Jose Abreu has, Gurriel could provide a decent boost in both power and average in the second half of 2016. Looking for boosted pitching? Perhaps you remember hearing about the tantalizing potential of Detroit rookie pitcher Michael Fulmer, our frequent flyer for April 29th, who just saw a scoreless streak of 33 and one-third consecutive innings snapped on June 17th. Well, there's another pitcher making waves for his own scoreless streak, Pittsburgh Pirates starter Tyler Glasnow, who, on June 22nd, threw his second consecutive scoreless outing for the AAA Indianapolis Indians. More importantly... Not only was it his second scoreless outing, but it was also his second consecutive no-hit outing. That's right, Tyler Glasnow has started two games without allowing a hit, 13 innings pitch total, 6 innings on June 17th, and 7 innings on June 22nd of no-hit ball. Tyler Glasnow has also compiled a lead-leading 161 ERA through 15 starts in the International League this season. In fact, he's only allowed one earned run through five starts of June, a home run on June 6th, meaning that four of his five starts of June have been scoreless. He's only allowed five hits of those five starts. In addition, three of his five starts of June have been no-hitters. Wow! Looking closer, Tyler Glasnow's 100 strikeouts through 15 starts currently leads the International League ahead of Tampa Bay's Blake Snell, Minnesota's Jose Barrios, Washington's A.J. Cole, Cincinnati's Robert Stevenson, and even Pittsburgh teammate Jamison Tylon, among others. 
Tyler Glass now has a dominance rate of 10.71 strikeouts per nine in 2016, but has struggled somewhat with his command. His command ratio, or strikeouts-to-walk ratio, is 2.13 strikeouts-to-walks for 2016, and is still well below our three strikeouts-to-walk benchmark that we use at BaseballHQ.com to identify baseball's best pitchers. Even so, a 2.13 command ratio isn't too bad, but his control rate of 5.03 walks per nine appears to be holding him back from joining the Pittsburgh Pirates rotation. But Tyler Glasnow is certainly making a strong case for a quick promotion. And now hopefully you have a strong case for promoting both Uleski Guriel and Tyler Glasnow, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our weekend pitcher matchups report. Our pitcher matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero, with pitchers rated plus one or higher considered strong bets to start, while those under minus 1.0 are strong bets to sit. In between, well, you'll have to gauge that based on your own risk tolerance and league context. We have four weekend matchups for you. A Saturday National League game in Atlanta has the Mets right-hander Jacob deGrom confronting Braves righty Julio Tehran. We'll also look at a Sunday battle of American League right-handers in Detroit, pitting the Indians' Josh Tomlin against Justin Verlander. And here to tell you about those matchups and two more is BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups analyst Greg Fishwick. This week we'll look at an American League matchup and a National League matchup for Saturday and an American League matchup and an interleague matchup for Sunday. Let's begin in Arlington, Texas, where the Rangers host the Boston Red Sox at slightly hitter-friendly Globe Life Park on Saturday. Both starting pitchers are in the recommended start range, and their matchup ratings are only four one-hundredths of a matchup rating point apart. Texas had two more starters join Yu Darvish on the disabled list over the past week, so the return of A.J. Griffin from the disabled list with a matchup rating of one is a welcome sight. He's opposed by Boston knuckleballer Stephen Wright, who has a matchup rating of 104. The Red Sox have the second-best run differential in Major League Baseball, scoring over a run more than they allow per game. But they're a game below 500 against teams that are at or over 500, and they've posted losing records over their past 20 and 30 games. The Rangers are the hottest team in the majors over their past 20 and 30 games, have the best record against teams that are at or over 500, and boast the second best home record in baseball. Texas is the better team right now. Even though Stephen Wright has a matchup rating in the recommended range, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield recently warned in a Facts and Flukes column that a correction is coming. Wright's expected ERA is nearly two runs higher than his surface ERA, and he has a hit rate of 25%, a strand rate of 83%, and a home run per fly ball rate of 0.4%. The narrative around Wright is that he's learned to throw his knuckler at different speeds, and he's improved his swinging strike rate from 9% to 12% as proof. But is that enough to stop the surging Rangers, or will they be the ones to change his luck? He's really more of a risk-reward wildcard, but he does have nine PQS dominant starts, including five of his past seven, and only one PQS disaster. So the reward would seem to outweigh the risk for Stephen Wright. A.J. Griffin did well in his six starts at the beginning of the season after two years off for Tommy John surgery and shoulder tendonitis, but he's been shut down since May 7 with shortness in that shoulder. Are the Rangers rushing him back, or is he ready to return? 
He's survived two rehab starts, so it would seem he's healthy, but in those first six starts, he was just as lucky as right. With an expected ERA a run and a half higher than his surface ERA, a hit rate of 25%, a strand rate of 75%, and a home run per fly ball rate of 0.5%. I'd say stay away. Our Saturday matchup from the National League takes place in Atlanta's pitcher-friendly Turner Field, where the New York Mets visit the once-proud Braves. Both pitchers have matchup ratings in the risk-reward wildcard range. Atlanta ace Julio Tehran gets the ball with a matchup rating of minus 054 against the Mets 2014 Rookie of the Year Jacob deGrom, who has a matchup rating of minus 1. Atlanta has by far the worst home record in Major League Baseball, and it ranks third worst in overall record, record against teams at or over 500, and run differential. The Mets may be sputtering slightly, but they are in the top 12 for road record, overall record, and run differential, and are four games over 500 versus teams under 500. New York has a clear edge against their cellar-dwelling division rivals. Jacob deGrom may have only three PQS dominant starts to two PQS disasters, but his strikeout pitch is back after being missing in action earlier in the season, and he should have no troubles with this matchup. In 73 innings, he has a strikeout-to-walk, or command, ratio of 3.9 on 71 strikeouts to 18 walks. His first pitch strike rate is 66%, his swinging strike rate is 12%, and his base performance value is 121. DeGrom's expected ERA is 339, and his whip is 114. In short, start him. Sure, Julio Tehran's minuscule whip of 091 is fueled by an extremely lucky hit rate of 22%, and his earned run average of 266 is a run lower than his expected earned run average, which is driven down by his strand rate of 79%. But his BPV of 112 tells you you can take a chance on him unless you're already so far ahead in pitching points that you're playing it very safe. On Sunday in the American League, we have the largest matchup rate differential we'll see when we turn our attention to Detroit's slightly pitcher-friendly Comerica Park for the Tigers game against their visiting division rivals, the first-place Cleveland Indians. The resurgent Justin Verlander has a matchup rating in the recommended range at 174, and the blue-collar Josh Tomlin has a matchup rating of minus 030. Both teams have been playing well over the past 20 and 30 games, and the Tigers are seven games better at home than the Indians are on the road. But Cleveland has the edge because it scores almost a run more per game than it allows, while Detroit scores and allows about the same number of runs per game. And against teams at or above 500, the Indians rank second in the majors, winning seven more than they've lost, while the Tigers rank 20th, losing eight more than they've won. Last week, host Patrick Davitt talked about good pitchers on bad teams in his Master Notes segment. Josh Tomlin is an average pitcher on a good team, which is why he has eight wins. He just plods along with his velocity of only 88 miles per hour, his swing strike rate of only 7%, his strikeouts per nine or dominance rate of only 5.9 strikeouts per inning pitched, and his expected ERA of 404 elevated by a strand rate of 79%. But Tomlin's pinpoint control rate of 0.8 walks per nine on only seven walks in 81 innings pitched, his whip of 108, and his base performance value of 105 on a good team makes him a good bet. Justin Verlander is back. He has PQS dominant outings in 8 of his past 9 efforts and 10 of his past 12. In 100 innings pitched, Verlander has 102 strikeouts and 26 walks for a dominance rate of 9.2 strikeouts per 9 innings, a whip of 107, and a BPV of 115. There's no reason not to start Verlander in this one. 
Our Sunday interleague battle pits two left-handers with matchup ratings in the recommended range against one another in Seattle's pitcher-friendly Safeco Field, where the Mariners' possible comeback of the year candidate James Paxton has a matchup rating of 136, and visiting St. Louis starter Jaime Garcia has a stealth matchup rating of 007. The Cards have the best road record in the majors, and Seattle is under 500 at home. St. Louis has a chance to add to its third-ranked run differential of one run per game by using a designated hitter in the American League Park. But Seattle is not too far behind, ranking seventh by scoring seven-tenths of a run more than it allows per game. It's the M's ice-cold recent records that put the cards in the driver's seat. Over its past 10 and 20 games, Seattle is 2-8 and eight and 6-14, and 14, better than only the two teams from Pennsylvania, the Phillies and the Pirates. In 27 starts between injuries in 2014 and 2015, Jaime Garcia had a whip of 105. In 14 starts this season, it's back up to 132, more in line with the rest of his career. Garcia's PQS dominant to disaster ratio is 29% dominant to 43% disaster. His control ratio of three walks per nine innings is the worst it's been since 2010. And only a ground ball rate of 57% keeps Garcia in games for the 25 batters he faces per game. Also, his worst figure since 2010. The Cardinals are giving him six days between starts and limiting him to 88 pitches per game. He may be serviceable for them, but probably not for you. James Paxton has reemerged with a 2.5 mile per hour increase in velocity over five starts since returning from injury and minor league work to average a PQS dominant score of three. His unsightly whip of 162 is largely a result of his 42% hit rate, and Paxton has put up a fine BPV of 141 thus far. But the card's superiority tipped the scales to more risk than reward for Paxton. So this week, we looked at three starters with matchup ratings in the recommended range and five in the risk-reward wildcard range. We bumped up Jacob deGrom to a definite go, confirmed the recommendation for Justin Verlander, liked what we saw enough to take chances on Stephen Wright, Julio Tehran, and Josh Tomlin, and decided to stay away from A.J. Griffin, Jaime Garcia, and James Paxton. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a Baseball HQ analyst who brings his weekend pitcher matchups comment here to Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about trying to build a new pitching metric. During my earlier interview on this show with the fine sports writer Michael Salfino, he happened to mention that in assessing relievers, he pays very close attention to the stat, isolated power against. ISO is just slugging minus batting average, and it's a very good proxy for understanding how many extra base hits a hitter is likely to amass, and ISO against, therefore, is how many extra base hits a pitcher is likely to allow. Michael's reasoning was that a pitcher who is stingy with the extra base hits is less likely to give up runs because his opponents have to string together at least three positive events, singles, walks, etc., by contrast, pitchers who give up extra base hits can be scored upon more easily. A double followed by a single will do the job in most cases. This got me thinking. If it's positive for relievers to avoid extra base hits, then the same should apply to all pitchers. Extra base hit avoidance might be a useful validator of performance, maybe even a predictor. At first it looked like I was onto something, but it turned out to be fool's gold. 
My quest started at BaseballReference.com. I got the stats for all 429 pitchers who had at least 20 innings pitched last season. Then I calculated how many total bases, extra bases, and extra base hits each pitcher gave up in three different ratios, per ball in play, per nine innings pitched, and per batter faced. For the purpose of the study, Ball-in-play totals were made up simply by subtracting strikeouts, walks, and hit-by-pitches from total batters faced. So it does include home runs, which are not included in other ball-in-play ratios like BABIP. Then I correlated each combination against ERA and compared it with the Baseball HQ skills metrics of dominance, strikeouts per nine, and command, strikeouts per walk, both of which have a correlation of about 35%, which is fairly indicative. I was most interested in the ball-in-play ratios because they take strikeouts out of the calculation. Obviously, we want to target high strikeout pitchers because there's nothing better for the old ERA than a whiff or 14. So the idea was to see if we could find some desirable arms when we're looking at that next tier of pitchers in the lower strikeout per nine area. Here's what I found. All the ERA correlations with the total base ratios were much stronger than the HQ skills metrics. Even the lowest ERA correlation, extra bases per balls in play, was 58% correlated, 23 points better than the skill alone metrics. The best correlation was between total bases per 9 innings and ERA, a remarkable 88%, but that measure does include strikeouts, since innings are made up of outs, and not far behind was the total bases to ball and play ratio at 75%, all the more remarkable in that it is a measure of ERA expectation that explicitly excludes strikeouts. As if to accent the point, five of the top 10 total bases per balls in play pitchers were under the 20% league average strikeout rate. So were 18 of the top 50. The best pitcher on the list was Brad Ziegler, a serviceable low-cost closer over the years despite a very low 14% strikeout rate. The best on the list also included Mark Melanson, who was thought during this preseason to have a tenuous tenure as the Pittsburgh closer because of his low strikeouts. Other targetable relievers on the list included Will Harris, who captured the closer role in Houston, Sam Dyson, who landed the closer role in Texas, and Ryan Madsen, who did likewise in Oakland. All of them have done some very effective closing, despite being just a few points above the league strikeout average. Among starting pitchers, minimum 50% starts, the top performers on the list looked like Cy Young ballots in both leagues. Names like Arietta, Granke, Kershaw, Keuchel, DeGrom, Cole, Bumgarner, Price, and Scherzer. But while all of these starters also had solid strikeout rates, the list also had low strikeout stalwarts like Marco Estrada, Chris Young, Erasmo Ramirez, John Lackey, Rick Porcello, and Jordan Zimmerman. Names like that made this start to feel pretty exciting. But the real test would be checking to see if a pitcher's total bases per balls in play in one season predicted his performance in the next season. Not so much. While the first-year HQ skill metrics maintained their 35%-ish correlation with next-season ERA, the total bases per ball and play correlation with next-season ERA fell all the way to 11%, such a weak connection that it's closer to random than to predictive. This year's total bases per balls in play was still 73% correlated with this year's ERA. The deal was sealed with one last discovery. Last year's total bases per ball in play barely predicted this year's. The correlation between 2015 and 2016 was just 13%. 
The idea behind BABIP is that once the ball is hit, the batter is pretty much powerless to determine its outcome. These new stats coming out, which let us see bat velocity and launch angles, seem to suggest batters do have some influence on the ball's in-play outcome. And indeed, we knew as much when we realized a few years ago that individual batters established their own BABIPs, which we call hit rate at Baseball HQ. But the same is assuredly not true of pitchers. It's a little frustrating to see something shiny in your pan, only to find out that it's fool's gold. We can now conclude that the connection between total bases per balls in play and this year ERA is that both of them are facets of the same events on the field. A pitcher allows lots of total bases on his balls in play, his ERA goes up. But unlike actual skills, those numbers change in other periods, and there's no connection. It isn't all a lost cause. If nothing else, this ultimately futile chase for a new, actionable connection between events on the field reminds us of a very important rule in analysis. Correlation isn't always causation. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, June the 24th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 30 of the 2016 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday edition of the show, Yahoo Sports and Wall Street Journal sports writer Michael Salfino, a great guy, very interesting, and always has a ton of interesting information about fantasy baseball. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I have a facts and fluke spotlight on the BaseballHQ.com site looking at White Sox outfielder Adam Eaton. And of course, I always hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can also stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt and send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes to add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. I didn't forget the answer to our trivia question. The only active pitchers besides Zach Greinke, who have more than one stolen base, are Washington reliever Oliver Perez and San Diego starter Andrew Kashner. A couple of big boys rumbling around the bases. And the all-time career leader for pitcher steals in the rotisserie era, Greg Maddox, who had 11 stolen bases in his Hall of Fame career. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday when our guest expert will be Baseball HQ co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. That's the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. 
Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.